does have it all. All of our pre-owned vehicles are Hubler Q certified, which include a 128-point vehicle inspection, a free Carfax vehicle history report, and two warranties. A two-year, 100,000-mile powertrain warranty and a 30-day, 1,000-mile comprehensive warranty. Visit any of our 13 locations today or click drivehubler.com. It's second down and four. Taylor stays in the game as the back left of Minshew goes out of the gun. Ball in the left hash. Shotgun snap. They give it to Taylor. Right side angling into the end zone. Touchdown! I-N-D-Y! Walker to throw. Here comes the blitz by the Colts. The ball is loose. It's around the 35-yard line. There's a fight for it around the 40. And it's the Forrest Buckner. Buckner has the football at hand at the 39-yard line. Speed. The strip sack. EJ Speed brought everything he had on the play. And the Colts defense comes through. Basically, with our backs to the wall, now there's a flag down there in our secondary. Sean Smith's going to tell us. Legal contact. Defense. Five-yard penalty. Automatic first down. Oh, that is an absolute killer. Oh, Oh, boy. 38 seconds to go. Oh, no. The Browns are out of timeouts here, and they got to get into the end zone down by five. They trail 38-33. The game is on the line right here and right now. Walker to pass. The Colts bring in pressure again. Throws into the back corner of the end zone. That's incomplete. And a flag again. A flag again in the end zone. Then they're going to nail Daryl Baker Jr. again. The, the first one is no harm, no foul. That should never have been called. Should never have been called. It's all or nothing right here. They got Shelby Harrison as the fullback. Hunt is the tailback. Fourth and goal at the one. They give it to Hunt. Hunt looking, trying to get in the end zone, and he crosses the plane for a touchdown. Oh, boy. Oh, boy. Oh, boy. Final score here at Lucas Oil Stadium. It's the Browns 39 and the Indianapolis Colts 38. So the dog pound comes to Indianapolis and steal a win, probably courtesy of a couple of late calls. And there are multiple ways in which you can look at that, decipher it, interpret it, digest it, of which we will do all of those today on this Monday edition of Query and Company. Good afternoon to you. My name is Jake Query, and Jimmy Cook is the president of the company. Eddie Garrison, who put that highlight montage or lowlight montage together, is the CEO, and it's Query and Company here on 93.5-1075, the fan after Cleveland comes in and gets the win yesterday. The first half was defined, I think, by the dominance of Miles Garrett, truth be told, and the way that the first half ended which I think might actually have been as big a culprit as anything in the Colts' loss. And then, of course, the game defined with the Colts having it in grasp by not one but two controversial plays. And we will break down both of them. And um, I had something pointed out to me last night that I will share that I think is a really good point about one of those two plays that I haven't heard a lot of discussion of that we will get to today. But before we do that, gentlemen, uh, to both of you, good afternoon to you. Gorgeous day outside. Glad to Um, see you made it back from your... Annual trip yeah, with your buddy Mike Byron. I did. Nice call on the name memory there, Eddie. Thank you. It's impressive. Uh, we did do the annual Kevin Turhan Donner Memorial Road Trip that my buddy and I do. We we flew into uh, Manhattan and immediately went to Long Island. Our room was fabulous because literally we we had a balcony in our room at the Marriott in Uniondale, New York on Long Island. And the view was perfectly aligned of Nassau Coliseum which is a pretty historic 
I guess, hockey venue more than anything else. Uh, Billy Joel's played there a lot too. But uh, did Long Island. Then we, dro- we, we, we do this road trip and we have no game plan. We just wing the whole thing. And decided spontaneously from there. I think I told you we thought maybe we'd go to the Navy Air Force game. We did do that. Went to Annapolis. Went to Baltimore. Then went down to Charlottesville, Virginia. Uh, had dinner at the University of Virginia. Watched a little of the UVA-UNC game. Then drove from there to Dayton, Ohio. And got back yesterday, actually, in time to be able to watch the entire game. So I did see the entire game yesterday. And, you know, the silver lining, I guess, Jimmy, you would say is this. They doubled up, more than doubled up Cleveland's average allotment of yards in a game, right? I mean, the offense, the good, the yin and the yang. They move the ball and they look good, but you got to be able to protect – you have to be able, excuse me, to protect the football, and they did not do that at all. Yeah, I mean, I don't want to fully blame – Gardner Minshew in terms of the turnover area because the offensive line crumbled yet again, particularly even though he's had a strong season. Bernard Ryman for the second week in a row gives up a strip sack, but like you see sacks all the time in the NFL. Like ball security needs to be apparently more emphasized within the quarterback room. The other thing I'll point to is that it's a bit of a helter-skelter reaction for me from the Colts defensively because on the one hand, you really didn't give up a ton of points in terms of offensive points scored by the Browns. A lot of it was, as you mentioned, just the game-wrecking ability of Miles Garrett to stack a couple touchdowns and a couple field goals for Cleveland. However, P.J. Walker looked awful, like absolutely dreadful. And the only reason they're even having the opportunity to put the Colts in the situation that they were where they get those two late penalties is because Indianapolis is bottom of the league in pass defense. And P.J. Walker is able, despite how awful he looked at times in relief of Deshaun Watson, to make a couple plays, to move them down the field and create the opportunities that essentially take the game in some levels out of the Colts' hands and leave some things to chance where you have defenders on an island where you're letting the officials potentially impact the game, which was no doubt in my mind they did on one of those calls. On the other one, I I don't know. I didn't necessarily think it was the most egregious thing in the world, the illegal contact penalty. The PI, that one I had a problem with. Okay, here's the issue with – we'll go play-by-play here, okay? I mean, by that, I mean the two plays at the end. Sure. We will get into the play calling and questionable play calling, in particular at the end of the half, that I thought was a, a huge swing point of that game that came back to bite them. But at the end of the game those two plays that you heard. I want to begin with this. I have never been one. I have tried my hardest to not be. And I know that, look, we, we have a responsibility here to some extent to speak for, you know, the name of the radio station is the fan, right? I think that people listening to the game, I know this. I know that most of you listening to this program are probably Colts fans, but not all are. Your NFL fans are sports fans. That doesn't mean you're automatically a Colts fan. But I know that many of you listening are Colts fans. I get it. And I, I appreciate it. And I have always felt that when you are granted a credential for games, that your responsibility is to be able to answer the questions that people are asking, yelling at their television set while they're watching it. We have an access that we are privileged with, and therefore the responsibility of that is to handle that credential with the understanding that you are speaking for and or representing or trying to get answers to the questions that fans want. And for that reason, I do feel like 
there is a little part of us that need to speak for fans. But at the same time, objectively and professionally speaking, it's our job to be more fact-based, to offer like a, 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 a more narrowed view of it, to kind of talk people off ledges, so to speak. So you kind of balance the two. So I have never been blame game on officials guy. I just haven't. I, I think now as a fan, especially when I was a kid as an IU basketball fan, I certainly probably was that way at times. But I have become much more just like relaxed or peripheral in, in that and also understanding the official's job as well. Like I do not believe – and I know that people are convinced of this. I don't believe – I know Tim Donahue would, would – I think he's the outlier. I don't think that officials have money on games and they're throwing them or they have dinner reservations, all those wild things you hear. I think at times they're human beings and they make mistakes. And for me, that's a fan reaction that you can have – immediately after it goes final for a couple of hours. And then as you're reflecting on that game, you realize, you know what? There are other opportunities we had to either put that game away. I I was using the word we as if I'm a fan of the team and they didn't do it. We didn't do it. It's not just that one penalty because that's the same thing that as coaches go back over film, like Shane Steichen's not canceling film sessions today because guys, Hey, we didn't win because of the officials. We don't need to review what happened the rest of the game. We got job. Let's move on. No, right. they're, they're still reflecting on areas they struggled. The The first play, Jimmy, and I agree with that. Um, the first play, the illegal contact on Daryl Baker Jr. That was the play that seemingly the Colts won the game on. Because you have EJ Speed coming in. Like a laser, he creates the turnover. The Colts get the ball. They run out the clock. Game over. Everybody goes home happy. Wait a minute. There's a flag down. Illegal contact. Defense. Five-yard penalty. First down. Drive stays alive. Now, what we haven't discussed is the fact that the Colts put themselves in position at that point by allowing two huge chunk plays and like some sort of a prevent defense. Yes. And P.J. Walker. Correct. They allowed P.J. Walker to become P.J. Runner. <laughs> he wasn't running the ball. He was throwing. But still, like they allowed P.J. Walker to, to march down the field and put them in position where they're on their heels for – P.J. Walker, who has played his career with the Colts practice squad, with the Houston Roughnecks, with the Carolina Panthers, with the Chicago Bears practice squad, and now with Cleveland. They allowed P.J. Walker to march down the field and put them in that position. But nonetheless, they seemingly make a play to stave that and end that nightmare. What I haven't heard discussed a lot when was the illegal contact? From my vantage point at home, the only real replays that they showed was the contact itself. They did not show you Correct. in terms of where, and I haven't watched the L22 but there is yet a it, wide, so There's a wide-angle shot of Walker with, his, with the ball coming out of his hand, and you have seemingly the contact has not yet taken place. The point being... The second that ball that ball becomes a free ball, it is a free ball and a free possession. And as a result of that, 
the there is no offense nor defense, and thus a receiver is no longer protected under illegal contact rules as an offensive player. That ball was in play as a as a loose ball to use a basketball term. It was a backwards pass. It was a backwards pass. That's correct. That that's true also. But but it was a it was a free ball. I mean, in other words. There was no offensive. There was no offensive or defensive side at that point, and and because of that, illegal contact should not be enforceable, right? Because it's Katie bar the door, free football, have at. That's the that to me was the bigger, more agree. But again, that's that's also a a human error, like blink of the eye level thing but in review i think they should have been able to see that that's what they should have reviewed but they didn't now the pass interference as everyone and their brother has pointed out at this point pass interference is only pass or is is only pass interference when it is a catchable ball the one thing that i have not heard on the other side of that and i'm playing devil's advocate i don't think this is the case but i think it's worth pointing out is it possible that ball looked like it was like nine feet? You know, it landed like in like somebody took it home as a souvenir, right? <laughs> it landed on the line where the fans have to stay back if you're on the field. But it almost hit the tarp, okay, the security guards. But is it possible? I'm playing devil's advocate. Is it possible that that is in fact a catchable ball if a receiver unimpeded has the ability to leap to try to make the catch? No shot. You don't know that though, right? No, I Victor Wimbanyama couldn't catch that and keep two feet in bounds. Like that landed at the yellow striped line by the by the stands. There's no way. I'm just saying that that is a. I don't disagree with you. I'm playing devil's advocate, but that's one of the things that the official ha- in that moment does he make that call, thinking that that's what he is. You know, I don't know, but the bottom line is this, and I know, and I respect, and I appreciate that this is not a popular narrative. And maybe it's our job to come on here and and spread the popular narrative. The bottom line is, I think most would agree, the Colts basically got screwed at the end of that game. Okay? But they were in the position to get screwed because they had shot themselves in the foot on numerous occasions. This isn't always the case in the NFL, but it's the frustrating part about where this Colts team is at. The difference between teams that are really great and teams that are working their way there is that you don't it happens sometimes right but you don't always put yourselves in situations where officials could take control of that game and that goes back to both of our points about what pj walker did to them in the final drive of the game you need to be able to lock down as a defense and not let a journeyman quarterback put them in a situation where controversial calls could dictate what happened like, do sometimes calls go one way or another, even if you're a great defense? Yeah, look at the Eagles last year. Look at the Eagles in the Super Bowl. A lot of people were upset about that holding call that goes Kansas City's way. The same is true now with Colts fans. They feel like they had a win taken away from them. But you would hope more often than not, your team is talented enough where these are anomalies, that you're able to prevent the referees from even having an opportunity to make a controversial call here or there. And that's the most frustrating part, I think, for Colts fans outside of the fact the calls happened is that 
this was advertised as a defense that's going to be able to lock down and get you stops, and they couldn't do it when it mattered most. Granted, I'm not even talking about they couldn't stop them from the one-yard line four times. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the drive that Walker had to get them down there. Right. Totally agree. I mean, P.J. Walker, right? And you know, it's interesting. It's not like Deshaun Watson right now is setting the world afire, right? No. But when he goes out and you think to yourself, okay, I mean, Walker has – Cleveland is a team that is built – at this point, to not have to rely on strong quarterback play. But in that game, they had to kind of rely in the end on strong quarterback play, and the Colts allowed it. That was the frustrating thing. And then there's the – look, there were a lot of silver linings. There were a lot of positives to point to. And, you know, if if ifs and buts are candy and nuts, we all have a Merry Christmas, right? Right. But, you know, Jonathan Taylor got involved – Right. If that is how he's going to be used in this next chapter of his career, utilizing the passing game that way, this is going to be a very fun offense. And you have to. That's how you have to use it. You you watched Miami last night, right? Yes. I mean, and I know that Miami didn't win, but but like when Tyreek Hill is, you you never know where he's going to strike. It totally changes the way that you have to guard an offense, right? Mm Mm-hmm. And Taylor has that kind of capability if you can get him in space. And you do believe that Shane Steichen can can do that for him, right? Yes. Josh Downs continuing to be a beacon of hope in this wide receiver room. That's now back-to-back weeks where you look at him and you're like, man, glad Josh Downs on this and team. did I see, Jimmy, did I see with Josh Downs going for 125, right? Yep. Did I see a Colts receiver saying that he didn't get enough targets? Correct. How about that? Michael Pittman Jr., who's got, what, 19 more targets than anybody else on the team come this year? Yes. Saying afterwards, I'm not getting enough looks. I'm not getting enough touches. A guy who's been pretty quiet. He had 21 targets in the last two games. That's not enough. Got to come to me more. He did have a nice play, right? Yes. And he's a very good player. But is he threatened all of a sudden by Josh Downs? I don't think so, but is that what's going on here? That's the last thing you need, though. Like, they just got rid of one offensive player that was like (laughs) one squeaky – you know what I mean? Like, the problem is – This can't be the story that drives the rest of the year. And you have one squeaky wheel that you just gave a lot of oil to. Now, you still have a lot of oil left – but you don't want to have to start going into your reserve pipelines, right? Yes. So are they? Is do we have another wheel now that all of a sudden is starting to squeak a little bit? Because it's like, hey, where's my oil? I mean, that's going to happen at some point this year. We know that. It's contract year for him. I didn't expect it this soon, but at some point, there's going to be a, hey, maybe I need to push for mine. Um, I'm with Eddie. I thought he was plenty involved in the offense the last two games prior to this, including yesterday as well, even though the target share was kind of more evenly split, six targets for downs, five for Pittman. But Michael Pittman Jr. is a good player. I don't know that the takeaway from me post-game is, man, they didn't go to him enough. They didn't take care of the ball. Right. And and also, this is maybe better for Tuesday or Wednesday. I get it that Miles Garrett is a game-wrecking player. I understand that, but like, 
at some point, it falls back on, well, yes, there were injuries along the offensive line, but how are you letting him block that field goal, kind of change momentum, kind of change things in that first half? Like, There's frustrating elements of this team that still need to be fixed, even though Miles Garrett is a great player. And the reason I say even though is because if your hope for the Colts is a playoff run, there are Miles Garretts around the AFC. Those are the type of front man well, you're going to have Garrett, to go listen. through. He's Miles one of Garrett one. yesterday. Okay, but Chris Jones is him, right? No. It, like, I don't but, see Chris Jones jumping over an offensive lineman. <laughs> they're game wreckers. Yes. And he, it's not just that one, right? It's the strip sack. Like, it, it's back-to-back weeks now where you're putting, like, yes, Gardner Minshew has to hold on the ball, but that's brutal. Like, I told Jake this to open the show. People get sacked every week. And but, he's got to get rid of it soon. Yes. I, I mean, again, there were things to like. And then there's the disappointment of the way it ended. By now, though, by now, now that you've eaten the sandwich and you realize that like it was a pretty good sandwich for the vast majority of time and towards the end, like... Got a ghost pepper in the back and I wasn't correct. ready for it. That's exactly correct, right? <laughs> but by now, you probably should have like ingested all of sure. it and you can... And he, here's the other thing that I thought about and I, I don't want this to be the case, but I think it might be the case. What did we say at the beginning of the year about the Indianapolis Colts? What was at the beginning of the year for the Indianapolis Colts? What was the narrative about this team this season? It's about Anthony Richardson's development. Correct. And they were probably not going to win a lot of games, but they were at least going to be entertaining sure. and be interesting, right? The 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 Michael Pittman Jr. storyline is just a little tiny bubble in the water. It hasn't started boiling by any stretch, and it may not. It may never. It may be like that one little bubble that just floats around and just pops on its own. Or it might really start to bubble to the point where it's boiling a little bit. We'll see. But it's interesting. The Jonathan Taylor situation became exhausting. We started to call him Twiggy. We didn't like mentioning his name because it was it was running in circles. But eventually he got what he wanted. I think the Colts kind of threw in their cards on that. He gets $14 million a year, and now he is starting to show some flashes offensively and with Shane Steichen, flashes that we hadn't previously really even seen in terms of the way he's being used. He's interesting. Gardner Minshew is kind of a fun character. We thought he was just going to be the backup that was going to kind of tutor Anthony Richardson and sit with him in the film room and help him along in those ways. And now all of a sudden he's the starting quarterback and he at times is making great throws and at other times is turning the ball over and it's frustrating and you kind of don't know what's going to happen from one game or one play to the next, but you know he's got some skill within him. You don't know if he's going to win you a lot of games, but it is interesting to watch. And they're entertaining. The game yesterday was entertaining till the very end. And I thought about this, Jimmy, and I hate saying it because I don't want to be Debbie Downer, but I'm, I'm thinking myself more as silver lining guy here, right? But the reality is this, if you were to be Debbie Downer, the reality is this is probably not a team that was going to make a deep playoff run this year. As soon as Richardson went down, the goals, the objectives, the trajectory of the season theoretically changed. And so you're like, okay, they're probably not going to make a deep run. They might get in and get a wild card. They may even win the division. I don't think so. Jacksonville seems to kind of have a hold there but if they got a wild card then they do what they go on the road and they go to kansas city probably not kansas city but more like you go on the road and you go to baltimore this is the hat i tried to put on last week 
And I know it's not one that Colts fans want to hear. And not my tinfoil hat either. I mean a genuine hat of trying to be realistic, which is that you look at where the playoff rate is shaking up. And yes, is it true that the Colts have an easier schedule and like maybe they could backdoor themselves into a couple more wins this year? Sure. But Cleveland was a team that's right there with you. Buffalo is a team that's ahead of you in the playoffs right now. And the teams that are on the bubble, because yes, the NFL tracks from week one, who's on the outside looking in, the Bengals, the Colts, the Texans, and the Jets. Who's the most likely to probably jump from that group? Cincinnati. And then you're having a leapfrog one of Cleveland, Pittsburgh, or Buffalo. Like it, I'm not saying things are slipping away, but that's likely where it was going to trend if they were to make the playoffs. Is yay, finally back in the postseason, Miami beats you by 25. Tyreek Hill hits the peace sign, roll credits. And so here's the thing. In the end, when you look back on it in six months, are you going to look back at that game and be like, man, wasted opportunity? Or are you actually going to be kind of happy because they're drafting like 12th instead of 25th? That's a silver lining. It's kind of a desperate silver lining, but it's a silver lining, right? No doubt about it. Uh, We'll get into all of it. We will break down further the game itself. We will analyze areas as New Orleans now is next on the schedule, where the Colts go from here, and we'll talk plenty about those two plays. I want to hear your thoughts on it as well. Don Fisher joining us next on the program. Then Joel A. Erickson at 1 o'clock. Then at 2 o'clock, little Pacers chat. They tip things off on Wednesday. Season gets underway. So we are off and running here on a Monday. It is Quarry & Company, 93.5-1075, The Fan. Whether it's audiobooks or all-time greatest hits, long live listening to your favorites. Learn more about Kaskali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Kaskali is right for you. You know, there's actually a lot to talk about besides just two questionable calls at the end of the Colts game, which is going to dominate the conversation today for sure. Um, We'll try to get in touch with Don Fisher here for our Monday conversation, Hoosiers losing to Rutgers over the weekend. And then, you know, obviously basketball side, Indiana getting set. They're they're only a week away from their season beginning and in the headlines for the wrong reasons over the course of the weekend that we can get into in terms of McKenzie and Baco getting arrested in Bloomington, the five-star freshman forward for the Hoosiers. So a lot to talk about if we get a hold of Don. But let's stick with the Colts' conversation from yesterday. Um, You know, the Jonathan Taylor use, I want to get back into something that you had mentioned, Jimmy. I think it's a really good point. This is a guy that, you know, I don't remember what point in the game it was, but he had a run in between the tackles, and, you know, he he kind of sprung for like a seven- or eight-yard gain. And I thought to myself, okay, it feels like they're starting to utilize him more. Like, we didn't know where he was from a health standpoint a week ago, but, like, clearly they are incorporating him more and utilizing him in different ways. And the the different ways – we have become accustomed to assuming that Jonathan Taylor is a guy that you were fairly limited in the ways that you could use him. But perhaps that's less about – the ways that you can use him and more about the ways in which previous administrations did use yeah. him. And maybe Steichen is able to come up with some different things to you to, to get out of him. You know what I mean? You look at Jonathan Taylor a year ago and the narrative around him because the way he was used throughout his career is it's, it's Derrick Henry. He's another last of the line of power running backs that are able to find holes that others can't that are going to bully you and that's how they're going to do it. They're not going to do it in the passing game. It's going to be exclusively 
in the running game and maybe an occasional bubble screen. And then you start to see a little bit of a peek behind the curtain yesterday. And, and as well as they've eased him in, you saw it against Jacksonville too once or twice that, oh, wow, this guy's actually a pretty good route runner. We can utilize him to get some separation, and whether it's chunk plays or whether it's just trying to move the ball down the field in some short yardage situations, he doesn't have to just be a running back. And if that's something that's unlocked, which is a very modern NFL thing in terms of utilizing a back both as a runner and as a pass catcher, if that's something unlocked within a Shane Steichen offense, that is a plus side for everybody involved on the offense side of the ball. Right. And... You know, the other area that yesterday, and I'll have to go back and look at it. That I didn't, that one of the things that, that most intrigues me about the offense right now, and, and in particular now that we know that, you know, it's, it's Gardner Minshew's team, so to speak, is, you know, the tight end position to me was one that was really important going into the season because you wanted to, to have that safety net or that comfort player to kind of protect. You ever given a, a, a speech? You ever done like public speaking? I when have. You're speaking to a big group? Sure. Okay. I always tell I, my number one fear in life. Number one fear in life. Actually, I, number two. My number one fear in life my entire life was to have a heart attack, to be honest with you. Got that out of the way. Check that box. So the other one that I have to do from time to time is public speaking. It's my number one fear. I mean, I. I I don't sleep the night before. If I have to give a speech or I have to emcee an event or I have to go in front of an audience, I do not sleep the night before. I am a wreck, right? And so the way that I have always, when I have to give a speech, I think most people can relate to this. Before the speech itself, I find like somebody that's going to be in the audience and kind of talk to that person and get to know them, break the ice a little bit and, and get like a a little like of a, a chemistry with that person. And then I find that person in the crowd. And when I'm giving the speech, I just pretend that I'm kind of continuing my conversation with that person. That person becomes like my safety net. That person becomes the, you know, my, my comfort zone. And the tight end is like that. I figured it was going to be for Anthony Richardson. Right. And I was really curious to see who the Colts were going to have at the tight end position that was going to emerge this year and become the, Dwayne Allen slash Kobe Fleener for Andrew Luck, the Marcus Pollard slash Ken Dilger for Peyton Manning. And yet, we we still don't really know who that's going to be, right? I mean, yesterday you had... Name me the tight end that made the impact yesterday. Well, how about this? There were only two that even had (laughs) a pass thrown to them. Will Mallory had one target. Moali Cox, one target. Caught it, lost six yards. That's it. There you go. There's your tight end production. You know... (laughs) Perhaps it, it it, and that's one game. But when you look at the whole season, we're still what week seven now, and there's still no clear answer in a crowded right. tight end room. Who is te one? What's this, Eddie? He's ready. Line two. Don Fisher's ready. I mean, Don is he right? Yes. Isn't that what the kids say? Yes. He uh, is Don him. Fisher, the yeah. voice of the Indiana Hoosiers, joins us now on the program. Uh, Don, I was listening to the game on Saturday. I went to the Navy Air Force game on Saturday in Annapolis, and I, I, I listened to the game. We didn't go to the whole game. Driving in, I'm listening to the game. The Hoosiers are tied, and then I get in the car after the game, and they're down 31-17. And, and it felt to me, Don, 
and I don't want to be negative Nancy here, but it felt like that was kind of the that was the final teeter in the seesaw for the Indiana football season in terms of the way the season might go, and that that was a big one they had to get, and they didn't get it. Am I being too pessimistic? Well, you're probably not being pessimistic based on what we saw on Saturday <laughs> because it wasn't good. But at the same time, they still have a chance to turn things around, even though this week it is uh, unlikely to happen simply because they're playing one of the top ten teams in the country and the Penn State and the Lions at their place. But um, there is reason for optimism in the sense that there is still an opportunity for this team to turn it around because the last four games of the season are all games that they if they play well, could they, they could be in. So I am not going down the road of total pessimism at this point. Yeah, and you know, Don, that game, what is it, and this is such an elementary like neophyte question, but what is it about Rutgers, man? You know what I mean? I mean, I, I think I think Rutgers is a nice pro. I think they're a good program, but it just seems like that is one that c- consistently gives Indiana fits, and they had to know going into that game what was at stake, right? And it just... I don't know. The second half, it was like a tale of two halves, but but you saw it closer than I. So what did go wrong? Well, without question, the, the thing that went wrong or the thing that was most important that went wrong was the fact that the special teams did not execute the game plan. <laughs> and I say that in a number of areas. Number one, obviously, the block punt, which, you know, that's that's just you can't that's inexcusable and and I say that in the sense that Indiana has rarely had a block punt scenario take place uh, even though as a freshman James Evans struggled with that a little bit and he had a couple of problems in that area getting the ball off but honestly the truth of the matter is we, we, we get a block punt because number one we can't line up and we had a guy out there telling people you got to be over here and one guy would move and then Rutgers made an adjustment and you have to move again. And by the time they got it settled, they should have probably called a timeout, but that didn't happen. And so obviously Indiana makes a mistake, gets the punt block, they run it in for a touchdown and then they muff a punt. Jalen Lucas can't handle the, uh, the punt uh, gives up the football right back, and they score another uh, field goal before the half. So those two plays happened in the second quarter that give uh, Rutgers all the momentum. And then going into the third quarter, Indiana doesn't move the ball effectively offensively, and the defense makes a huge mistake, giving up an 80-yard touchdown run to the quarterback, and you're sitting there going – what else wrong could possibly happen at this point because just about everything has. So the negativity right now, um, and that's what bothers most. Obviously, Indiana football is prone to negativity because of the traditional record that they have and the traditional problems that they have. But right now, you're looking at a ball club at this point, you don't know where their mindset is in any way, shape, or form. And even though Tom Allen preaches the same thing week after week, and yeah, we've got to fight through this and the resiliency and all those kinds of things, uh, I don't know if this team can bounce back from it. And that's why there is pessimism at this point, no question. Voice the Hoosers, Don Fisher, nice enough to take a few minutes with us. Don, I guess looking for a silver lining here, have they found stability if that's the right word at the quarterback position with Brendan Sorsby is that the direction you think they stick with at least for the next couple games 
I think so. I, I, I Tom Allen had the press conference today. I, that's what I, I I just left it, and obviously he talked about the fact that Brandon Sor- Brandon Sorsby is going to be the starter for this upcoming game against Penn State. Unless something dramatically changes during the week, I think we're going to see Sorsby out there again. He looked very good in the first quarter of the ball game. He wasn't as sharp. After that, he threw some bad passes, um, got a little bit more pressure put on him by Rutgers during the game, uh, wasn't quite as effective. I, I guess maybe the most, the, the most fun thing or the most uh, optimistic thing that we saw was Trent Holland for the second straight week get opportunities and take advantage of them and really look like a powerful, strong, physical running back, uh, especially in the second half of this contest. And uh, if they can run the ball more effectively, it may take some pressure off the passing game because right now everybody thinks, well, Indiana's going to pass it because they can't run it. Don, this is kind of that interesting time of year where you cross over as well and you got basketball season coming into the mix. Um, to trans- transition over to that, Hoosier Hysteria, of course, was over the weekend in Indiana. Hard to believe this, you know, already getting set for Sunday coming up an exhibition against the University of Indianapolis. What most intrigues you right now about Mike Woodson's group and which player or two are you most interested to see what they might be able to do early for Indiana? Well, Kalel Ware obviously is the seven-foot kid from Oregon that transferred in from that school, and I, I, I'm definitely wanting to see how he plays. I want to see if he uh, is motivated, if he's a hard worker. Uh, I want to see. I know his skill level. I've watched him in practices, <clears throat> and I don't think there's any question he's got all the skill in the world for a guy that's seven foot tall. I mean, he's really got talent, but will. Indiana, can Mike Woodson bring that out in him? Can he play hard all the time? Can he work his tail off? Will he work his, on his own? That kind of thing. So I'm interested to see Khalil Ware because as a seven-footer, that's exactly something that India has very rarely had. And to have a guy that that talent level on top of being seven feet tall could make him really special. So he's the one guy I'd look at right now and say, yeah, I want to see how that's all going to play out. The other thing I'm looking at right now, guys, I'm very interested to see how Mike Woodson sets up his offense this year because, as we know, last year the pick and roll with Trace Jackson Davis uh, uh, or feeding the post on a consistent basis was the way Indiana was going to play the game, and it was understandable why they would do that take the strength of the uh, – you know, take advantage of the strength of the best player in your court, and that's what they did. This year, I think they have to spread the floor more. They, I think they have to have other people shoot the basketball. They've got to look at it from a different perspective, and I'm very interested to see how Mike Woodson goes about trying to set up how they play offensively this season. Don, has Mike Woodson, for those that don't know, uh, McKenzie Mbako, who is a, a star prized recruit for Indiana, was arrested over the weekend uh, for two misdemeanors for not leaving a Taco Bell there in Bloomington. And the police said that he resisted when they were asking him to get out of the car, and thus he picked up a second charge for that. Uh, you know, I would anticipate, obviously, you've got to go through the judicial system. But based on precedent, or has Mike Woodson offered any insight as to what the discipline would be for him or how Indiana handles that situation? I'll know more about that later this week, Jake. I haven't talked to Mike yet. Uh, I'll be at practice uh, on Wednesday uh, for sure. Uh, I probably will learn more at that juncture, but honestly how it's going to be handled, I don't know. Um, 
I, I got some news this morning. It was a little bit different than what I anticipated I would hear uh, about the situation. But at this point, I'm not divulging a thing because I don't know how accurate that news is. All I can tell you is uh, it's right now the discussions are being had about it. And other than that, that's as far as I can go with it. When you look at a year ago, Don, in, this, in the Indiana basketball program, you know, Jalen hood Shafino was clearly a really special talent. I mean, I, I'm not breaking any news there. But so much of the offense w- was, you know, run through what he was able to do with Trace Jackson Davis. And obviously, Trace Jackson Davis, I watched him playing well in Golden State. But who handles now, who kind of carries that torch, if you will, of now for Indiana, the guy who the ball goes in his hands and that's where everything kind of goes through where you feel the most comfortable who's the guy that you think that Woodson looks at this year to kind of take over that role well I think that's somewhat obvious just because of his experience level and that would be Xavier Johnson I mean he's he's the oldest guy on the team yeah and you almost forget about him because of last year right I mean I hate to say forget about him but you know what I mean Right, because he sat out most of the season. So, uh, and there's no question. I think that Mike is looking at he and Trey Galloway as the two leaders on this ball club. They are the most experienced guys on this team, um, and without question, uh, Xavier, you know, has kind of bought into Mike Woodson's system. I mean. Woody has always said, I'm harder on my point guards than anybody else. And, and right now, he is the guy. Gabe Cubs, the freshman uh, point guard from Ohio, is looking very good to me as well. But I think it'll be Xavier Johnson who everything has to go through this year, at least initially, because uh, without a doubt, he's the most experienced ball player on this team, and he's the point guard. So, uh, I mean, it could change as the year goes on. They might be playing three, three guards in the lineup at some point. Who knows? But again, that's kind of the thing you're always looking to see how they're going to develop this team and how they'll end up playing as the season progresses because they got a tough schedule. And right now, I think everything's in the experimental stage of things. And with the game against Indianapolis coming up on Sunday, the first exhibition game, and then one on the following Friday against Marion, we'll get an opportunity to kind of see what Mike is planning on doing or how he plans to handle things because it's going to be a different look this year for this ball club and the experience level on this team not what we've seen in the past and of course outside conference games against the likes of Connecticut and Kansas so a lot of opportunity for Mike Woodson to find out where his team is before they get into the heart of Big Ten play Don appreciate it as always look forward to talking to you next week as well Guys, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. All right. Again, Don Fisher, the voice of the Indiana Hoosiers. Joel A. Erickson to talk a little Colts. And I have, uh, when we come back, I brought back gifts for you guys. I forgot about that. All right. I know that's your favorite. Time. Eddie just, I've never seen Eddie so happy. Eddie's mad at me because we're well, a minute over been, going into the I break. I would have been happier if I could have broke out the snaps. But well, you know not. what? They At halftime, you could have snapped with IU Rutgers and then Eddie, unfortunately, Rutgers snapped their way right out of it. All right. We'll do it next. Joel A. Erickson in 12 minutes. Whether it's audiobooks or all-time greatest hits, long live listening to your favorites. Learn more about Kaskali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Kaskali is right for you. Joel A. Erickson going to join us. We'll talk further about the Colts game yesterday against Cleveland Browns coming up top of the hour. Um, 
I appreciate you guys manning uh, the fort and Brian helping out on Thursday and Friday so I could do my annual road trip. As I mentioned, on Saturday, my buddy Byron and I were in Annapolis, Maryland, which is, by the way, absolutely beautiful. And, by the way, in, we, we spent the night in Towson, Maryland, which is suburban Baltimore. Went to Nacho Mama's. Uh, no, th- this was the auxiliary one where Nasty Nestor had told us that the Bob Ursay coffin is on the wall at the Nacho and the mini Bob Ursay doll. Uh, neither one there at Nacho Mama's. We went in and asked several Colts things on the wall in Nacho Mama's, which is a super cool restaurant bar, but no Bob Ursay. So that still is at the original in downtown Baltimore. But we went to Annapolis. We went to the Navy versus Air Force football game. Watching the Naval Academy football team, after a loss, mind you, sing the alma mater song, and then as soon as that took place, and the Air Force team goes over and joins them, and then as soon as they were done, the Air Force team sprinted over to the opposite corner, which is where I was sitting, for their fans and their band, and they do the Air Force song, and the Navy players come and join that as well, and then at the end, they all chant, Beat Army. Uh, but nonetheless, I figured since I was on the road, now you will notice here, what does this bag say? Can you read it in the, let me see if I can show it on the YouTube. This says? United States Naval Academy. Right. So listen, guys, I, this, this, I didn't go to Walmart to get you guys stuff. I went to the actual <laughs> legit thing, right? So when I was at the Naval Academy, I went to the Naval Academy store, no taxes, mind you, and the... They have the T-shirts that you can get. You know, like you go on a college campus and they have... Give me a college off the top of your head, Eddie. Uh, LSU. LSU. So you go to the LSU bookstore, and they always have that one little section of the bookstore where you can then buy the T-shirts that just say LSU cross-country, like LSU track and field, LSU golf. Sure. So they had every sport, except for, Eddie, I was going to buy you Navy baseball because you played baseball, right? They didn't have baseball? They didn't have they didn't have the baseball shirts. They have the, I'm, I'm assuming they have a baseball team at the Naval Academy. They did not have Navy baseball shirts. So then I thought, well, what, what do I get? I thought about Navy football, but then I thought that really would be rude of me because that's an, a rival of Notre Dame's tradition. I, pr- I appreciate you not putting me in that situation because then I become a jerk where I'm like, oh, thank you, Jake. I probably won't wear this one, so, but I thank you so very much. So here's the thing. You guys are part of the company, as you know, right? We are correct. What is a, what, what is a euphemism for company? What's an, a, another word for company? Like if you get if you hire a painting company, the group of people that show up at your house to paint your house are known as the painting what? Crew. So therefore, here we go. You guys are part of the there Navy. We go. All right. I went with crew. Now nice. I, I I found it I found it odd though, because if you're in the Naval Academy, like why would you need crew? Why would you have guys rowing a boat when you can just get on an actual like you know what I mean? Yeah. Like an actual sure. ship. Uh but nonetheless, now Eddie, here's the problem. I, I might have screwed up on the sizes. But there is yours, Jimmy. You also uh, straight from the Naval Academy, your Navy crew shirt. Thank you very much. There you go. It's better than the Twilight Zone shirt you're wearing. I appreciate and, that, uh, Eddie. Here you go. Now, Eddie, if this, I might have misjudged the size you told me. Uh, I, I, I guesstimated. So if this is too small, you can give it to a family friend. There you go. I'll give it to Olivia if it doesn't fit me. Okay. There you go. So you guys are in the crew. How's that? I appreciate this. Joel Thank A. You very Erickson much. in the company next. <laughs> Whether it's audiobooks or all-time greatest hits, long live listening to your favorites. Learn more about Kaskali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Kaskali is right for you. That was the maniacal laugh, by the way, of Joel A. Erickson. Speaking of the fact that in that 
originated when I divulged to, to Joel A. Erickson, Wisconsin native, that the land where Jeffrey Dahmer's chocolate factory was, where he worked, is now the site of the Milwaukee arena where the first ever event was a double billing concert between the killers and the violent films. And along the lines of that same creepy stuff, I did go to the Amityville Horror House. It's Horror yeah, House. Yeah, I want to make sure. Okay, good. Uh, on Long Island, site of the Amityville Horror book and movie from like the late 70s, early 80s. Um, and it's a super cool house on a street where like every house is like a million dollars. Did anybody yell at you? No, actually, the guy across the street, this is the best part about it. So they, they said, I had read that the woman who owns the house where Amityville Horror had taken place, um, like, isn't keen on people coming by, but it's like Halloween time, so there's like, I'm sure, constantly people going by. Across the street and down two houses was a huge house where the guy had like 50 Halloween decorations set up, strobe lights, like all kinds of you know, like music, and how about this, a like eight foot by eight foot high def screen in his front yard that was showing Amityville Horror. So like what you could sit in the street and watch the, the <laughs> you know, whatever. And he came out and I talked to him, super nice guy. And he's like, you know what? Like you live on the street, you got to embrace it. People come by all the time. The lady that lives in the house is nice as can be. It's not really haunted. It's just one guy that wanted insurance money, killed his family like 50 years ago. I'm like, okay, cool. Uh, joining us now, and I'm sure thrilled to be doing so on that segue, Joel A. Erickson of the Indianapolis Star. Uh, speaking of Amityville horror, it was essentially that for Daryl Baker Jr. at the end of the game yesterday. Joel, has the league, uh, I have not, obviously we've been on the air, so I haven't seen today. Has there been any sort of a like statement from the league about those plays at the end and the possibility of those calls being errant? That went against the Colts. I don't think it cost the Colts the game. I think the Colts cost themselves by putting themselves in that position. But two pretty bad calls, right? Yeah, and you know the, the league hasn't said anything, but I think I'm gonna I'm gonna kind of take this one. I'm I'm the pool reporter, um, and in the moment I didn't realize uh, part part of it. I, you don't want to make excuses for this, but part of it is that we're writing stuff that goes up immediately at the buzzer, and you're you're not as locked in on it maybe as you need to be. Um, but I think that we probably should have sent me down and done a pool report. Now, uh, the, the, other people can ask to send me down to do the pool report. It's not just Can, you, can me, you explain, but, by the way, Joel, my apologies, can you explain to our listeners, because I know what you mean by that. I know what pool reporter right. means. I don't know that the average listener knows. Can you explain, uh, as if I'm a second grader, what that means when you say pool report and send you down? So... Uh, the referees do not talk after every game. Uh, they can be requested by the people in the press box. That when, but unlike you know Shane Steichen or uh, you know Jonathan Taylor or somebody like that, they don't speak to the refs. Don't speak to like you know twenty people. Uh, there, there's a, a pool reporter designated for each team whose job it is to uh, talk to the refs if there is a questionable call. And like I said, it comes from a request from us. I, I, I was thinking about it today. I think in hindsight, uh, that's that's probably what we should have done. We we kind of like, we kind of missed it. I kind of missed it in in the moment in terms of getting an explanation from the referees. I, I think the thing I really would have liked to have asked most of all um, is how do you how to determine whether or not a ball is catchable or not on the pass interference. Joel, I, again, I'm not. I'm not going to sit here and say like, oh man, that's because you're right. It is a missed opportunity, but in terms of 
after the fact, is there anything from a like your storyboard standpoint or anybody else that is on the beat that could reach out to the NFL for clarification on that after the fact, or is it just in that moment as the pool reporter? It's typically it's typically just in that moment. They don't really do the whole, you know, like the NBA has the uh, doesn't the NBA have like a two minute report? Yes, last two minutes. Yep. Yeah, I, they, there's not really. There's not really anything like that in the NFL. I, we'll, we'll probably end up asking the Colts if they ask for clarification on those calls. And, um, you know, the answers we get back from those sometimes kind of depends on the coach, kind of depends on what their league says about the call. Um, but it's usually not super revealing. Joel, the one to me, I mentioned this earlier, you had two plays to end that game and first off the Colts should not have allowed P.J. Walker to get even in position there in the first place to, to run that offense down the field I thought they were way too soft defensively to, to get Cleveland down into that position but nonetheless to me the the more questionable call was the illegal contact because and that negated the Colts what appeared to be game ending takeaway that play once that that backwards pass is released it's essentially a free ball and once it's a free ball there is no offensive player to be protected by that rule because there's no offensive defense there is no possession at all and that's the one that I'm surprised that 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 hasn't been questioned more or am I totally off base in that perception so I I saw a screenshot that basically showed the cut and contact in the secondary happening sort of simultaneously with, with speed making the hit um, from a, a referee's perspective. And my uncle, who's been a, uh, a ref in Wisconsin high school football for a long time, will be mad at me for not knowing this exactly. But um, the, uh, like, I, I think that the, the person throwing the flag is probably not looking in the backfield. At that I think point. I think that is fair the because they are in they are responsible for one area of the field and not in totality. Correct. correct? Yeah. Yeah. Correct. And so that that might lead to it. Like I said, that's just one screenshot I saw. It made it look like it was it was sort of simultaneous. And then, you know, uh, in terms of getting the guy, I know they got together and talked about the call. I, I, I wonder if that's part of it. You know, was the ball gone? That kind of thing. Now, in terms of the the game itself, um, silver linings, uh, maybe lurking issues, etc. We'll begin with silver linings. Jonathan Taylor, I thought that was the most that they obviously have presented him, but it, it appeared to me, Joel, that Jonathan Taylor did start to show that, yes, in fact, he's healthy and he is um, going to be a weapon for them. Are they going to start – is Shane Steichen going to come up with even more ways to utilize Jonathan Taylor? I, I think so. I think you're already starting to see it. You know, some of the stuff they're doing with him in the past game is stuff that in the past would have been more Naheem Hines' stuff. But if you go back and look at his his first couple of years in the league, on the on the ball he caught, he was averaging I think it was I think it's something like eight one year and then nine point three yards per catch uh, in in his first two seasons. He he can be a more than more, a lot of running backs usually in their yards per catch are kind of in the five, six checkdownish type range. Taylor's speed allows him to do more than that. It seems like Steichen is trying to tap into that. I also think that the Wildcat using him, it wasn't super successful yesterday, but I think that's another indicator that they're looking for ways to feature him. I'm with you. I thought that yesterday was a 
sort of a clear sign that it's time to give the offense back to Jonathan Taylor. Um, and I actually thought uh, that one drive when they were backed up and they ran Zach Moss three times, I thought, you know, I thought 28 should have gotten at least one of those carries. I agree with you on that, Joel. Is that in part because it's clear they still had a snap count on him? Yeah. I, I mean, it only went up eight percentage points in terms of snap count from a week ago. It was 39-33 week six, and this was right down the middle, 35-35 between him and Zach Moss. Is that what it was yesterday? I I think that's possible, but it also, you know, that, that, that it – it didn't jump up enough. It jumped up much more from the first week to the second week. And I think that, you know, a handful of snaps more on that drive, maybe a couple more snaps to get a first down and, you know, whatever happens after that, it, it probably wouldn't have put it out that much. Taylor seemed to me, seems to me to be ready to go. I think, I think having Zach Moss there, obviously it keeps you from, you know, having to run him into the ground the way they've had to do in the past. But, but, yeah, I, I think we're kind of in a spot now where, especially in that game, that close, he was just the more effective back in the second half. And I would have liked to have seen him in, in that, that situation specifically. Did the lack of targets towards any tight end, is that more schematic out of Shane Steichen or is that more lack of tight ends stepping forward? I, I think it's a comment. Well, it's Kylan Granson obviously wasn't available. Right. That's, he's sort of a receiving tight end. That's part of it. I think the other thing um, to look at is Miles Garrett was on the other team. Yeah. Fair. And there was a lot of tight end chipping, some, some effective, some not. Uh, I think that probably had something to do with it, too, is that your, your, your tight ends end up being a way that you can try to slow him down in one way or the other. And I, I would assume that the Colts thought that was probably more important. I, I thought their receivers played fairly well yesterday, too. So, yeah, I, I, I think that the, the presence of Miles Garrett may be the, the smoking gun on the tight end position. Michael Pittman Jr. after the game. Joel A. Erickson is our guest of the Indianapolis Star, talking about the Colts yesterday, their loss to the Cleveland Browns. Uh, I was surprised by this, Joel, that Michael Pittman Jr. made comment about his lack of targets. Alec Pierce was thrown three balls. I believe he caught all three. Josh Downs had a really big game. But Pittman Jr. is still the most targeted receiver within the Colts' receiving core. Is this a problem that could be percolating for the Colts? I I think it's more likely at this point that it was just the frustration of a close game and that when we talk to Pittman later on this week, he, he may not have the same – uh, feeling on it, just given what he's done over the course of the season. Uh, I, I think that, yeah, I, stuff comes out after after losses. Emotions come out after losses, especially close ones, that maybe maybe once you've had some time to reflect, don't don't end up the same way. And obviously, he's, his, he's gotten a lot of targets in this offense this year. So uh, that'd be my guess. I think it becomes an issue if, if we talk to him later this week and he says, and he says, no, I'm doubling down. I, I I did not get the ball enough. A couple of times the last couple of weeks now, we've seen pressure be let up on the offensive line, and it puts Gardner Mitchell in a situation where he can no longer try to make reads. He needs to either tuck the ball and prepare for the impact or get rid of the football. How much of the strip sacks the last couple of weeks and very impactful, of course, yesterday against Cleveland, does that blame go on Minshew? Well, if you look at if you look at Minshew's career, um, 
my my editor Nat Newell ran the numbers on Pro Football Reference on this. He he has now fumbled 27 times in 27 career starts, and that's not that's not perfect because there's been a lot of games in his career where he's come in and played significantly. The way he took over for Richardson a couple times this year, um, but even even accounting for that noise, that that would put him at the low end, uh, close to the bottom of of quarterbacks in the NFL over over the time he's been in the league. And so it's this is something I think that that is probably going to keep coming up. At least you know historically his interception percentage is generally not that high over the course of his career. The, the fumbles have been an issue, though, and we, we're kind of seeing them, you know, a couple weeks in a row now. So by the way, speaking of noise, Joel, we're getting a little bit on the reception. So, Eddie, I'm going to have you actually see if you can reconnect with Joel real quick um, just to get rid of – so it doesn't sound like he's coming in like a 45 record uh, <laughs> on an AM station. But um, Change the record. Flip it over. B-side. But that's right. You know, the um, – it's a great question about Minshew and and the the turnovers, right? Because I I don't part of that is also I I think part of that Jimmy is the answer of you know Miles Garrett, right? I mean, just it's been a long time. Miles Garrett is a guy that it's never sexy to take a defensive player number one overall in the draft, right? But good lord, like that guy is. I, I mean, he absolutely at least in the first half of that game, for the most part, Jimmy, he controlled that game, controlled it. And I thought, and we'll bring Joel back into this for this part of it. Joel, for as much as we want to talk about the two penalties at the end of the game costing the Colts, I thought where the Colts really hurt themselves was take me through the thought process for for the Colts at the end of the half instead of just running out the half and going in to the locker room with the lead, trying to throw the ball with Miles Garrett lined up there that deep in your own territory. That, to me, was a fatal, fatal mistake. Yeah, I, I think that one just came down to – I think that basically just came down to Shane Sykin got greedy. They're, they were in a shootout, uh, sort of an unexpected shootout, I think. And uh, and I, I think he started feeling like, hey, we've got we've got to chase points here and we've got two minutes and, and let's do it. And, I, I you know, he kind of said at the end of the game, that's, after the game, that's on him. He, he just kind of owned it. I, I think that's what happened. He, he, he wanted to be aggressive because there were a lot of points being scored in that game and – you know, but didn't take into account enough what Miles Garrett can do. Is it more on Chris Ballard or on Gus Bradley if an injury to a piece in the secondary, more notably in this case a rookie who showed promising bright spots in Juju Brents, that an injury like that could then have ramifications where you're out of position or you have an offense that's picking on you, which ends up leading to Baker giving up the, the two penalties, whether Colts fans agree with them or not. Is that more on lack of bodies at the position or is it more on just the scheme in your mind? I, I, I think it's, I think it's on the lack of, of good options Yeah, uh, at the, at the cornerback position. You know, it, we coming into this season, I think we all said, if you're going to go into the season where your cornerback depth outside of Kenny Moore is essentially um, two guys who were undrafted free agents a year ago and have not played much, versus, um, you know, and then a bunch of rookies, you're, you're probably going to have issues. It's, it's probably unrealistic to think that you're not going to have issues. And that was before injuries started happening and you lose Dallas Flowers, who was the more experienced of the two. Um, you know, they added a cornerback last week, but that, that he's not a player who's any, any more experienced. He's another rookie. So 
I think that there's there's not a good option for them to go to, an experienced option for them to go to in those situations. I think that falls more on the front office than it does on, on Bradley. Joel, kind of a weird question because of corporate buyouts and companies that like now actually own it technically elsewhere in other countries, et cetera. But if we're just going based on the origin, like if we're pretending that every beer is actually brewed in its origin city, what is the best Wisconsin beer? Uh, for it's it's for me it's New Glarus Fat Squirrel. Okay, that's not a bad. One. That's like a that's like a kind of like Newcastle, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. That's not a bad yeah, call. Spotted Spotted Cow gets the love from New Glarus because it's the most famous one, and that's but, like the that's their cream ale, right? Yeah, a little, not really a cream ale, but definitely lighter. Okay, yeah, definitely definitely lighter. That's more of the more of like the, the classic sort of Wisconsin lager. Um, and it's it's like for a lager, it's really good. But I just kind of like stuff with a little bit more to it. I, I I'd go Fat Squirrel, or actually, you know what? Um, Cabin Fever, which is one of their seasonals, that one is really good too. And that one's kind of like got some honey notes, but not like aggressively. I don't know. That one's really good. Now, no wait a minute. How can you give no loves no love to PBR? It's got to be PBR, right? I, I I do love PBR. Yeah, ninth and Juno, right there, right next, right next to the chocolate factory. As a matter of fact, <laughs> I I do love PBR, but New Glarus, New Glarus is the standard bearer now. How about Schlitz? Schlitz is a little bit. We're getting in now. Schlitz is a little bit getting more into the. Oh no, what have I done? Old Milwaukee. <laughs> Old Milwaukee is definitely in that. Milwaukee's Milwaukee's best is. There's, there's like nicknames for these that I can't say on the radio. Yeah, the beast. I, Milwaukee's best when I was in college, the rumor was the urban legend of Milwaukee's best was that they took all the spilled over beer from like Miller Lite, Old <laughs> Milwaukee, and the others and poured it into one. Like, yeah, and then it won best beer competition, so they decided to bottle it. That was always the rumor I, on Milwaukee's the, best. I've heard the exact same rumors yeah. like many, many times. Do you yeah. think it's true? Have you done a tour? Of, do you want to go up to Milwaukee and do a tour of the Milwaukee's best brewery and watch them do that? I... I, uh, if that's what they do, absolutely. I, I've, been, <laughs> I've been I've been taken to task though because I keep whenever we go up to Wisconsin, my wife really wants to tour the New Glarus Brewing Company. It's a little out of our way, but the last time I suggested it, I stupidly suggested it while she was pregnant with our third son and couldn't have alcohol. Yeah, that's she was good. Like, what are you doing? <laughs> well, first why off, is, why are let, you suggesting it on this trip? And listen, I love Wisconsin, but let's be real. If you're anywhere in Wisconsin, you're already out of your way, right? So what the hell? Why not go? <laughs> let's be real. I mean, come on. Um, hey, Joel, let's let's assess the offensive line for the Colts yesterday. Your thoughts on, you know, Miles Garrett is kind of a cheat code. I realize it. So there's a huge challenge there. But your thoughts on the nonstop, I guess, evaluation and assessment of the Colts' offensive line. It, the, the penalties were an issue, uh, too. I think that's another piece of this. I, I think you do kind of with Garrett. You're going to have – I mean, just look at the way he blocked the field goal. You know, that's just not a human thing to do. Um, so, so there are – you do have to, to give them some Miles Garrett, you know, points – in their favor, but I didn't think it was their best game. I know Ryan Kelly kind of said he felt like they left some stuff out there. They, they need Braden Smith back. I think that's pretty obvious. Um, they, they, they had been trending in a very good way to start the season and had played really well. Um, I, I didn't think yesterday was, I didn't think yesterday was a continuation of that. Uh, Eddie, you had a point or something you wanted to, to 
point out about the the distribution in terms of the running back touches, correct? Yeah, Joel. So yesterday, Taylor has that drive, seven touches, 50 yards, and a touchdown. And then the next two drives after that, Moss, six attempts, seven yards, Taylor, three attempts, zero yards with one reception. I just thought the game at, at, at that point, you needed to ride the hot hand in Jonathan Taylor because he was the reason why you just cut it from uh, whatever it was, 10 to 2 or whatever, the def- 9 to 2 at that point in the game. I just didn't like how they went away from Taylor after that uh, one drive where he led them down the field. Yeah, I agree with that. I, it's Like I said, that's kind of what I ended up writing ultimately after I – I mean, I wrote some some stuff on the penalties and some stuff on Shane Steichen's decision-making. But then my my, my the, the main story I wrote was it's, it's we're at the point now where Jonathan Taylor looks like it's time it's time for the offense to run through him. Everything needs to go through him now, and especially in the fourth quarter. Like, if, if, that's, if that's whoever your guy is when the offense is being run through in a close game, that's who should be getting it in the fourth quarter. I had mentioned earlier, Joel, when Jimmy and I were talking, last night I'm watching the Dolphins and the Eagles, and I love the Eagles' Kelly Green uniforms, by the way. Um, and in watching that, you know, Tyreek Hill, it just completely opens up everything for Miami the way that you constantly have to account for where he is because of his speed and his, his ability in space. And it does feel like Taylor has that kind of capability for the Colts. Is that where we're headed with Shane Steichen? And then do you become too reliant on it and it becomes something that dis- that, that takes away from distributing the ball elsewhere? I, I, I don't think – I actually don't think with Steichen that it will end up taking away from it because they have the opportunity with Zach Moss to kind of, I don't know, keep the, keep the defense keep, – first of all, keep Taylor fresh, but then also sort of – the defense has these moments where they're not paying attention as much to, to what's going on with 28. And I, I do think Taylor is that guy, uh, especially, especially the way they're, especially the way they're configured with Gardner Minshew. We're, we're just not going to see teams. Um, teams are going to, to gear up for the run. And I think, I think my expectation is that Shane Steichen is going to try to use that against people. He's going to try to figure out ways to, Use Jonathan Taylor and the threat of Jonathan Taylor not only to get in the ball, but also to, um, you know, to, to to make defenses end up being wrong by chasing him. Um, and I think I'll probably open it. It should open stuff up for the rest of the offense. I, the hard part though is that you know, with, with Minshew back there, there are limitations to the passing game and what they can do. And that's that's going to be the kind of tough part the rest of the season is you're going to try to emphasize Taylor, but you don't really have what you want at the at the in the passing game. Joel, is it pretty clear at this point, regardless of what happens with the Michael Pippen Jr. drama, that when you're mapping out the roster next year, it should be him and Josh Downs? Like, solidified as those pieces. You need to build around them. Obviously, you have JT, but in the passing game specifically, have we seen enough from Downs and we've seen a body of work from Michael Pittman Jr. that, yes, that's a solid start to a receiving core? I, I think I think the three of them together, I, I, thought, I actually think Alex Pierce has had a pretty good couple weeks here in a row. Um, and I think the three of them together, their their roles all make sense playing off of each other. Um, I, I think that to some degree, I think Alec Pierce gets hurt a lot by what he hasn't been able to play with at the quarterback position in terms of like his, his skills. He's supposed to be the guy who's getting downfield and, you know, winning jump balls like the one he won the other day. They haven't necessarily had the guy who could throw those. Um, outside of you know 173 snaps with Richardson earlier this season, but I, I do think that there's I do think that there's there's the the 
Steichen really wants receiver cores that have guys who can do different things in different roles. And those three really do set up that way. Um, now, with Michael Pittman, I, I think the sticker shock is going to get some people. And, you know, whether or not you feel like – I think whether, whether or not you feel like he deserves what he's probably going to get, either from the Colts or from somebody else, is, is, a, is a different argument. But it, it feels to me like they've got something there, especially with the way Downs is playing now. Um, and not just not just making you know the plays out of the slot, but he, the the big plays from Downs I think really add something. Now Lakefront Brewery in Milwaukee, I like Joel. That one. Yeah, and I don't know if you know this. Have you done the tour of that one? I haven't done the tour. I've I've eaten there and and you know partook partook in the in the uh, the main part of the the brewery there. Yeah, several. it's kind of like it's kind of like the Sun King one on college, right? It's got like the big room with the food and and you know, it's a cool joint. Uh and it's also fun because like I've always been in December and I'm the only guy not wearing flannel. Um and <laughs> at Lakefront Brewery, if you do a tour of the brewery itself. Here here's my tip for those that are traveling to Milwaukee. If you go to Lakefront Brewery and you do a tour of the brewery itself, in the tour, that is actually the brewery where they filmed the opening scene of Laverne and Shirley, which I'm the only one of the four of us here that knows what I'm talking about. But in the opening scene of Laverne and Shirley, when Laverne and Shirley are bottling the beers and they put the glove on the beer and it, and it takes off and then they're waiting for it, that actually was filmed in the spot that is now Lakefront Brewery. And they let you reenact that when you're on the brewery tour. That's my tip for people that go to Milwaukee. Yeah, I, I, I need to do some of these tours. The, the complicating factor is that my kids are seven, five, and one mm-hmm. on some of these trips. And so, but well, the, we also, the drinking also, age I'm in Milwaukee's not, nine, so you just give it two more years, right? I'm I'm very close to my my hometown where my dad still is 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 like twenty minutes away from the Line and Kugel uh, Brewery too. So, like, there's there's a couple of places here I need to I need to mark off. I just need. What, what, what we need is we need the grandparents to come with us and, and volunteer to take some child <laughs> is, duty. Well, wait a minute. If your dad's so you drop the kids off with your dad and then you go and you do the line of Kugel deal, right? Uh, generally, but my my dad is the my dad is the grandpa who always has something planned. Okay. <laughs> so so like we get up there and he's like, okay, we're doing this, 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 um, and the kids love it, you know. So so that's that's the that's the complicating factor there. All right, fair enough. Uh, Colts getting ready for the New Orleans Saints coming up. That is the next on the schedule. And, Joel, I'm sure we will talk to you again either just before that game or probably just following as well. But appreciate certainly the time today in talking about the Colts and Browns from yesterday. Yeah, you bet. Thanks for having me on, guys. Uh, Joel A. Erickson of the Indianapolis Star on the hotline. Have you been in Milwaukee, Jimmy? I have. Did I ask you that last time we had Joel on? I love Milwaukee, man. It's a great place. I love it. Yep. Eddie, you been? Uh, no, as I dropped the phone. <laughs> What's going on over there? Everything going okay over there? Yeah, everything's fine. The phone just slid <laughs> you off see, the You seem to shovel today. Everything going okay at home? I'm everything totally fine, okay? yes. Okay. Yes. <laughs> Did you try on the t-shirt? I have not tried on the t-shirt. You no. want to try on the t-shirt? I'm curious if the t-shirt fits. Jimmy, how's your t-shirt fit? Fits nice. Okay, good, good. fit. Looks good on you. Yeah. Thank you. And what was the other shirt you were wearing? You were wearing a... Uh, it, was a uh, it was a Tower of Terror uh, Mickey Mouse shirt. Excuse me? It was a Tower of Terror Mickey Mouse shirt. Mickey Mouse shirt. Yes, indeed it was. Okay. It, fe- well, it's, it seemed very fitting. Friday. It seemed very fitting for the type of terror that Colts fans had to deal with yesterday. Well, it was a so Mickey Mouse operation, certainly, in the exactly. way it was called down the stretch, exactly. if, if you were to ask Colts fans, right? Yes. Um, I want to get into this situation that happened over the weekend as well with IU basketball, and we can get into that. But I would like to know also people's – have people calmed down at all from yesterday – 
uh, in terms of those two calls. I know yesterday people were out for blood and they're like, that cost the Colts the game. Now that you've stepped back a little bit, can you kind of see the other areas where the Colts put themselves in that position or are people still like absolutely living to the last two calls? And I understand if you are. I do get if you are. We'll get into all of that and maybe take some phone calls as well. You are listening to Quarian Company here on a Monday, 93.5, The Fan. Here's a- Whether it's audiobooks or all-time greatest hits, long live listening to your favorites. Learn more about Kaskali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Kaskali is right for you. A really good text from Jay. Jake, to me yesterday, the refs cost the Colts the game. To me today, the Colts left the door open and the refs escorted the Browns into the house. In short, lock the door. Yes. That's a really good way of saying it. It's a great way of putting it. And that is the case. As a fan, you're allowed that, right? You're allowed that kind of 24-hour period of frustration if a game ends where you feel like you got jobbed. And then as you come back down, you realize, A, you shouldn't have allowed yourself to be in that position to begin with, and B, there were other things you probably could have cleaned up that would have made that inconsequential. Blake Freeland really had a rough day yesterday. Yes. Going over to the right side. You know, you mentioned Bernard Ryman. The consistency probably was not exactly where you'd like it. But the problem is this, and and this is not to pick on the Colts. I don't know. This is probably true of most franchises. But with Blake Freeland at right tackle, I mean, you're already going, you know, with Braden Smith out, you're moving him over to right tackle. There are a lot of players in the NFL that would get turnstiled by Miles Garrett. But you still have a job to do. And if you wanted to make a change at that point, how many guys do you have that you can throw over there and say, all right, let's see what you can do? You're, you're pretty limited, right? You're, you're very thin at that point. And again, this isn't a pass because there were some times where it felt like, I don't want to say business decision, but maybe a business decision or two was made. Freeland is a rookie. He's still very much learning. I mean, there were a lot of things said, and there's still reason for growth, but there's a lot of things said a year ago about Bernard Ryman as a rookie. Like yeah. it's it's there's a learning curve. And Bernard Ryman, it felt like, to be honest, Jimmy, it was about. I would say that the the last quarter of the season is where it really started to finally mm-hmm. show. Like, okay, I think they have the guy here, right? Yeah. Um, and I think that there, to an extent, that offensive line is probably somewhat of a mental position. You know, there's there's Anthony Costanzo was fascinating to me because. First off, Anthony Costanzo, the transformation of just his body in general from the time that he was drafted to the time that he retired and his commitment to it. But that guy was totally committed. And I knew Costanzo, I mean, I didn't like hang out with the guy, but I did some radio shows with them and and had conversations with him and was around him kind of progressively through the first three or four years he was in the league in particular. And he was so dedicated to... And this is interesting, like the geometry of the position. Anthony Costanzo would literally study like the physics of where your body had the most strength as you had to transition and swivel it and how you transition that, but also the angles in which you would block and the way guys would line up and the angles at which they would have to move their body. It really was fascinating the way that he studied the position and he he literally dedicated like the first two or three years he was in the league, every aspect of his life going towards putting himself in position where he was not only 
like a great tackle, but the smarter tackle in terms of lining up across from somebody and being able to out-chess them, if you will. O-line play is not sexy for the common fan. Correct. So it makes us forget that, oh, only quarterbacks need to worry about their mental game. Only wide receivers right. need to make sure that they need to be having that part of their craft fine-tuned. It's just as important for guys in the trenches. But like if you, with Miles Garrett, for example, if all of a sudden you're getting beat up the snap every time, then you start to like, do you rush yourself? Do you, do you start putting yourself in bad position? And I think probably part of that came into Freeland as well. Like all of a sudden where you're just, you start losing focus on exactly the geometry and the science of what it is that you need to do. But again, going back to yesterday at the end of the game, I totally get, and we've talked about now at at pretty good length, the, the nuance of the right or wrong of those two calls, but the Colts shouldn't have put themselves in that position. Quite frankly, the PJ Walker, you let P.J. Walker go down the field. You had a last drive, and I thought they got too lax defensively where they kind of went into like a prevent and and allowed two big chunk plays, and now all of a sudden Cleveland's right on the doorstep. What are you doing at that point? You had had P.J. Walker pretty much in your pocket from a defensive scheme. I mean, in part because of the type of quarterback that he is and the, the lack of like even average level skill like he struggled a ton the last couple of weeks sure was he serviceable against San Francisco yes but multiple times Gus Bradley had the right blitz call the same blitz call really on multiple plays and they couldn't adjust to it because Walker's holding on the ball too long that's part of the reason why they're able to get the what wasn't strip sack fumbled in the game because of the penalty and I'm with you it's frustrating that you're gonna lay back give space and even give the opportunity for them to carve their way down the field and set up what ultimately was the game-winning touchdown. Kevin, what's up? Hey, Jake and company, how's it going? We're hanging. How about you? Oh, I'm not too good, man. I wish I didn't get so locked into these coats, man. They, <laughs> you know, I because I, you know, I. The thing is, man, at the at the end of the day, the stuff is kind of easy, man. You know, I tell me this. So I'm kind of worried that we'll be in games like this and even kind of score more and do things more than anticipated and and, and have games like this. But I'm worried that we'll probably lose 90% of them this season. And the reason why I say that is because I feel like we have a head coach and a defensive coordinator that are on two two opposite ends of the spectrum in in, in respect to, like, game scheme. And, you know, like I think Shane Steichen, I think he's w- exactly what we need for the future, even even right now. I mean, I think he's the reason why the Colts, now all of a sudden, we have something here. I think it's because of Shane Steichen and the way he, is, he, he schemes the game. He has a winning scheme. But on the flip side, I, I, Gus Bradley, man, he's especially down the stretch. You know, he's just not. He's just too mediocre. He's too, you know, um, play it safe, uh, you know, prevent defense. Well, they certainly yesterday played it too safe for the first half of that drive, right, that final drive. I know. I mean, but the thing is, is even not just yesterday, what about, like, the the Rams game? You know, what about last year against the the Washington? You let – what's his name? That, That was basically a Hail Mary to end, try to end the game, and they actually did it because you let him sit back there for five or six seconds. You know, my thing is, 
you know, just like, for example, the Rams game. You know, if you ever watch, you guys ever watch um, Animal Planet? And if you watch Animal Planet, for especially guys, the most thing we, the number one thing we'd like to see is like the lions when they're hunting and stuff like that. So if they're hunting wildebeest and they, they're chasing a, a crowd of wildebeest and there's one limping along or barely getting along, like 100% of the, of the time, they're not going to let that easy kill go. They're not going to say, forget him, we're going after the hard kill. They're going to get that easy kill. So in Matt, in Matt Stafford, <laughs> when he's one-legged at the end of the game, why are you not sending the pack after him? I just don't understand the scheme, man. It's just it's not a winning scheme at the end of the day. Kevin, by the way, and this is coming from me, which is saying something, right? I don't, I don't hand out this position, this business card very often. You're the director of analogies for the company. Is that cool? That's cool, man. I mean, that's that like like that's I love analogies, right? I love taking things and, and and putting it into the hopper where a larger audience can then grasp what you're saying, which was beautifully right. executed there. Now, I and I, you don't have did you have a previous title with the company, Kevin? No, this is my actually my first time calling in, been listening from day one. Okay, so let me ask you, Kevin, since it's your first time calling, and I appreciate that, can I play a little round to get to know your listener? We've had a lot of success with this. Kids in particular love this segment. Can we do this with you real quick? Right, yeah. Okay. Or, uh, yeah. Kevin, if you don't mind me asking, how old a fella are you? 50 years old. 50-year-old Kevin? Okay, so you graduated high school somewhere around uh, 91 and 93. I'm going to guess 92, though, right? 91. 91, okay. And um, your high school mascot was what? Like Rockets, Panthers, Greyhounds, etc. Wildcats. Wildcats, okay. Um, and did you go to Kokomo? I went to Lawrence North. Oh, I should have yeah, I should have known that immediately. And did you? Uh, were you an athlete there, Kevin? Yes. Uh, what? I, I, I played football freshman and sophomore, but then I wanted to do the co-op program where you go to school half the day and work the second half and – I'm still regretting that to this day. Uh, so this is ambitious uh, analogy, Kevin. Okay, and then lastly, Kevin, what line of work are you in now? I'm an electrician. Oh, okay. Um, and, and you and you listen to this program on purpose? I mean, do you enjoy the program, or is your radio broken? Which would be weird because you're an electrician. Uh, I love the program. Okay. Well, we appreciate it, Kevin. You can call in for your Animal Planet analogies anytime. It's absolutely welcomed, including uh, any Wildcat and Panther talk. Uh, Kevin, appreciate right, it, man. Good. All right, we appreciate it. Uh, it's it's true. I mean, they, they, they did get, I thought, too. He makes a good point. I thought they got too passive yesterday when it mattered most. And I agree with him on the Rams game, too, but it also felt like miscommunication amongst the defense. I don't know how much of that necessarily goes on Bradley and how much of it, like, the Puka Nakua, like, he just got lost. Like, there was a clear yeah. miscommunication within the secondary on that particular play he's referencing. But I, like many felt like they should have gone after Stafford in that Rams game early in overtime because he was hobbled, and they didn't do that. They, they adjusted away from it. And in terms of yesterday, yeah, I don't I don't get the, the call of stepping back unless you're that worried about, like you did lose Juju Brent and you are thin at corner, but it, it had been okay up until that point. Why would you change away from it? It's just frustrating. So here we are closing in on essentially a third of the way through the season, Okay. So I want to know this on the other side. So you guys have a couple minutes to ponder it. Give me the two teams that you look at the scores and the standings at the NFL at this point, and you're like, on either side, you're either saying to yourself, 
are they good? Or you look at it and you go, I thought they were supposed to be good. There are a couple of teams that jump out at me where they are total, they are, are they pretender or contender? You know, that kind of thing, right? Of just like, mm-hmm. uh, there are a couple of teams that. There's a lot of them. That you're looking at and you just go, wait a minute. This isn't at all like this is, this is like Lola. This isn't at all what I thought. But yet here we are, or are we? Because we're only a third of the way in. We'll get to that next. Okay, Jimmy, you start. Whether it's audiobooks or all-time greatest hits, long live listening to your favorites. Learn more about Kaskali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Kaskali is right for you. Give me the two teams. Good, bad, whichever way you like, where you look at the standings right now in the National Football League and you're like, that is not at all where I thought they were headed or where, where I thought they'd be. I did not think going into the season the Ravens were going to be first place AFC North. Okay. I most certainly didn't see the performance they put up against Detroit yesterday. That was a one-sided affair from Jump Street to be the schedule right. result the next day. Right? I did not anticipate that. Okay. Now, hold on. Eddie, go ahead with your first. My first, uh, Jimmy, if you would have believed me, you would have believed in the Baltimore Ravens at the start of the season. Uh, my first team, the Atlanta Falcons. I have a caveat, by the way. I don't think they're that good. They haven't really played anybody, but we don't have the time in the segment. Maybe 2 o'clock we get into that. But anyway, you're right. Had I listened to you, I would have known that maybe they were going to win. So Atlanta at 4-3, and three, I mean, that, that division, the NFC South, isn't it crazy to think that like... It is the somebody has to win a division. Yeah, I mean... You know, the Dallas Cowboys are, are going to have to go on the road in the postseason to Atlanta or Tampa. You know what I mean? <laughs> uh, I will take, by the way, in this category, I will take the Pittsburgh Steelers at 4-2. and two. I thought at the beginning of the year they were going to be like in the Caleb Williams sweepstakes. Maybe I totally undersold them. But at 4-2, and two, I think they've exceeded expectations. All right, team number two for you, Jimmy. The Buffalo Bills. You can see a frustrated Josh Allen yesterday. This is I didn't expect them to be where they're at, which is sitting at four and three, and they still play the Bengals, the Cowboys, the Chiefs, and the Dolphins again, not including the fact they had to play the Patriots again, but that's probably a one off. The point is though they're sitting at four and three. Miami's in the driver's seat in that division, and now you find yourself in a battle to make the playoffs against teams that have more favorable schedules. The Steelers, the Browns. Cincinnati's knocking on the door. Like, you're officially in a fight to try to make a wild card spot. That's where you're at. Eddie? The Chargers for me. Two and four, third in the AFC West. I would I, I would have thought they would have three, maybe four wins, but uh, two and four, and they have not looked. And really, they're one play away from being one and, yeah. one and five if, you know, Kirk Cousins can make one pass in the end zone for a touchdown. And then. Uh, Brandon Staley's probably gone because of that going on fourth down here on 25-yard line, but that's neither here nor there. But, yeah, Chargers to me. Yeah, same. Uh, I would put the Vikings kind of in the same category. I thought they'd be – I didn't think they would be like this incompetent, but and the Chargers are a good call. I'll go with the Houston Texans, though, and I know that's kind of an obvious one here in the, in the land of the AFC South, but did anybody really think the Texans at this point would be 3-3? Three and three? No. Uh, and that C.J. Stroud would be playing the level that he is? I mean – I loved when, you know, back in April, and I remember during the combine being told repeatedly, and I think John might have been hearing the same stuff, that 
Jim Irsay, not Chris Ballard, but Jim Irsay really liked Will Levis. And so I thought that was going to be a possibility for the Colts of quarterback. And then the Richardson thing really came on strong after the combine. And I think a lot of people, you know, it was pretty much almost a certainty seen by some people that that's where they were going to go. And that's where they went, obviously. And Stroud was ahead of that. But I remember at the time thinking, man, I don't know that I wouldn't even move up to try to get Stroud because coming out of Ohio State, I just thought he was such an accurate passer. And that's what he's been so far for Houston. And that's why they're three and three. I was in the same boat as you were where the trade that was made to go up and have that opportunity by Carolina to have the aggressiveness to go get, effectively at that point, Bryce Young. But when you have the top pick, you can make your conversation. Do you want Stroud? Do you want Young? I had thought maybe if the Colts felt confident that the answer was one of those two guys, go make the move to do it. And that was – I don't want to fully revisit that. We don't have the time to do it. But I didn't think the price was – insane what Carolina did to go get who they thought was their guy. Looks worse now because they've struggled and Chicago's going to get their pick and get double up and go quarterback and wide receiver in this coming draft. But if you feel like you have a guy, you go take the swing. Go trade totally up. Totally right. And I mean, I just you know what's fascinating is C.J. Stroud and you wonder if like Caleb Williams will fall into this as well. Like people start to convince themselves out of a guy because of the history of quarterbacks at that school. Well, you know, Ohio State quarterbacks, USC quarterbacks, look, if a guy can play, he can play. That should be the furthest thing down the list if you're a talent evaluator, and I'm sure it is, as to what school they went to. So often, like, there's there's so few schools that have put together, like, real Hall of Fame quarterbacks. I mean, the Bears yesterday won with a guy out of Shepard. Shepard. Do we even know where Shepard is? What's your guess? Is it Shepherd College or Shepherd <laughs> West Virginia is a real good call. Eddie, what's your guess? Uh, uh, Jimmy, did you know that? Is that why you, is that why is you that answered that? No, no. Yes. So there, I, it is? Yes. The okay. coverage was everywhere last night, so there's a chance that I did see it. I just knew it was a D2 school. It was the first time since like 1950 an undrafted player out of a D2 school had won a start. Yes. And that guy's last name was Shepherd, incidentally enough. <laughs> it really was. So over the week... Whether it's audiobooks or all-time greatest hits, long live listening to your favorites. Learn more about Kaskali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Kaskali is right for you. Weekend, one of the big headlines that suddenly rippled through the state of Indiana. And good Monday to you, by the way. Jake Quarry along with Eddie Garrison and Jimmy Cook. Colts yesterday losers to the Cleveland Browns. Uh, big discussion for the first two hours of the show here. But let's shift to Indiana basketball, who gets set for an exhibition opener against the University of Indianapolis coming up this weekend. But Mackenzie Abaco, who was a five-star player, initially a Duke commit, uh, now with Indiana, he had backed out of his letter of intent with Duke and now is with Indiana was arrested over the weekend after a, an alleged altercation at Taco Bell. Jimmy, you have the statement from the Bloomington police in terms of their version of what took place, correct? Yes. So this is from Bloomington Police Department Captain Ryan Pedigo on the Mbako arrest. Quote, on October 22nd at approximately 2.15 a.m., officers responded to Taco Bell, located at 3001 East 3rd Street, in reference to a man refusing to leave the property. Upon arrival, officers were advised by Taco Bell management that they were refusing service to the man in a vehicle in the drive-thru due to him cursing at and being rude to employees. 
Officials made contact with the man who refused to identify himself, but told officers that he was 18 years old. The man was later identified as Mackenzie Mbako. Officers asked Mbako to move his vehicle from the drive-thru line, which he agreed to do and moved the vehicle into a parking space in the Taco Bell lot. Upon speaking further with management, they requested that officers tell Mbako to leave the property. Officers explained to Mbako that he needed to leave the property, and he refused to do so and kept the windows closed on his vehicle. At one point, Mbako began to drive out of the lot, but then reversed his vehicle and parked again in a parking space on Taco Bell property. He was told repeatedly that he needed to leave the property by officers, but failed to comply and stayed on Taco Bell property for approximately 15 minutes. Officers determined that Mbako would be arrested for trespassing, but he then moved his vehicle to a nearby lot and parked again. Officers approached his vehicle and advised him that he was under arrest and that he needed to exit his vehicle, but he refused to do so. Officers had to use a baton to break the passenger side window of the vehicle to unlock the doors. Upon opening the driver's door, Mbako was given commands to exit the driver's seat, but he refused to do so. Officers had to forcibly remove him from the vehicle, and he tensed his arms and would not allow officers to secure him in handcuffs. Officers were able to eventually place him in handcuffs, and he was transported to the Monroe County Jail, where he was reprimanded for criminal trespass, Class A misdemeanor, and resisting law enforcement, Class A misdemeanor, close quote. Okay, now let me read you, and again, there now appears to be, well, there's another side of this story that we don't know about. More is going to come out. Okay. And I saw yesterday people posting like, well, look at the Yelp reviews of that Taco Bell. Their service is terrible. Look, Uh, this doesn't have anything to do with it. That Taco Bell sucks. Like as the most recent IU alum in this room, it's awful. Like, right. it, it, I, and I've been there at two in the morning before because, yes, I was a college age kid once and I actually, like late night Taco Jake, Bell. Jake I, is wh- actually the most recent IU alum. Eddie, thank you. Fair. Thank you. Fair. But yes. Point taken. F- f- most recent Bloomington resident of any of us, I right. guess, is a better way to phrase it. Uh, it's awful. At one point, they didn't have beef and I had to go to College Mall to go get some Taco Bell. Like, it's, it's, that, that, and that's just from an item standpoint. It's not a place you want to be, but sometimes fourth meal in the bell calls and you got to, got to get yourself some Taco Bell. Right. Okay. Doesn't really hold bearing on fully what transpired, but it's not a great place. So here's the thing. The problem is this, because I had someone say to me, like, Jake, like what's going on with Indiana basketball because of the number of players that are arrested versus like yesteryear. Okay. And we don't have to sit here and run down all of them. I mean, there have been, you know, Xavier Johnson, who's coming back from injury. I mean, was arrested in Bloomington for reckless driving, whatever it was, 18 months ago, whatever else. Two things come into play here. The first is this, and that is that when you are between the ages of 18 and 22, you're kind of a knucklehead as a guy. You just are. You make dumb decisions. Part of college is about learning how to navigate through your dumb decisions and and bounce back from them and learn from them and grow from them. So you are expected to make some dumb decisions. Now, that doesn't mean when the police are asking you to get out of a car. But again, I don't know what it's like to be a young African-American man. I mean, there, there are a number of circumstances here that it would be reckless for me or irresponsible for me to try to speak to specifically or put myself in that situation. So I'm not necessarily speaking directly of this case, but just in general. One of the challenges, I think, now with college athletics, and this is what Indiana fans, I think, need to accept I grew up a massive Indiana basketball fan. Massive. I could tell you the recruiting class of any like year of the 80s. 
who who were the freshmen? 1987, you know, the freshmen, David Miner out of Withrow High School in Cincinnati, Ohio, Tony Freeman, St. Joseph's High School in Westchester, Illinois. I mean, you know, I, I was a sycophant. And one of the things that I loved about Indiana basketball that I think Indiana basketball fans love and still love is Indiana's just different. The culture's different at Indiana. We're not Kentucky. We're not Kansas. We're not North Carolina. We're not a bunch of mercenaries. Our kids go to class. They're good kids. They come to Indiana because they want to do things the right way. Well, I'm not saying that McKenzie and Baco doesn't want to do things the right way, but I do think that now if you are entering into and you are the, the bottom line is this Indiana basketball now is the same as everywhere else. And that is that you are bringing in players that you are bringing there. In the old days, Indiana took pride in the fact that the reason that their basketball team were guys that were really good basketball players that came to Indiana because they wanted to get an education, learn a discipline, and grow up into becoming a young man. You know, Coach Knight makes men out of them, but they come in as 18-year-old boys and they leave as 22-year-old men, which actually, strangely enough, is what happens to anybody in college. But that, that was the thing at Indiana. Like, Indiana was different. We're not like Kentucky where they just kids are going there just to play ball like it's a factory. We're not like Kansas where they pay players. Yeah, you are now. You are. You're in the NIL era. You are doing backflips and posting your videos smoking cigars because some five-star kid that's never been to Indiana a day in his life except for one recruiting visit for 48 hours chose IU. You're doing backflips and you're making them mercenaries. But I would argue you shouldn't be mad about that. I'm not mad about it. Like, what I'm not saying, you, I mean people. Right. What I'm saying is this, Jimmy. I'm, I'm kind of speaking of two different things here, but not knowing the scenario with McKenzie Mbako and whether or not he was in the right or wrong, a court of law determines that. And I don't know the young man at all. He may be the nicest young man on the planet. I don't know. It's not. It would be irresponsible for me to assume anything on that. But... When you, for a long time, Indiana, the brand of Indiana basketball was that it was different. It was a place where you had kids that got there and learned discipline because they wanted to go to school and get their degree and play as a great basketball team. And then Indiana fell behind. I mean, yes, you could talk about the ouster of Bob Knight. There are a million different factors and where it can go. But Indiana fell behind the programs with which it used to claim running in the same circles. You know, we, we, we go to the party with Kentucky, North Carolina, Duke, Kansas, and UCLA, but the difference is we actually are cleanly shaved and we wear a finely pressed suit at the party and everybody knows that we're just different and we take better care of ourselves. That was always the brand of Indiana basketball. That brand is done. There's nothing wrong with that in the in the NIL era, but what I'm saying is you can't tout yourself anymore as an upper crust program that is different than everybody else, and the thing that made you different doesn't exist anymore. Now, what I'm getting at is this. That means that you are entering into an arena of a different type of player that you're recruiting, and I don't mean in character at all. At all. Jalen Huchifino seemingly is a wonderful human being I, I and was a great player. Trace Jackson Davis was a fabulous player and representative of Indiana University in every way, shape, and form that you would ask, right? But you are 
you run a higher risk of an entitlement because what you now do is you are entering into the arena of recruiting. When you start recruiting against the Kentuckys, the Carolinas, the Dukes, and the Kansases of the world, what that means is that you are recruiting players who are getting and bypassing the opportunity to get everything that you used to to roll your eyes at that Kentucky, Carolina, Duke, and Kansas offer. If you are getting that player now, it means that you basically got them the same way. And with that comes young people on a campus that have probably have not been told no a lot. You go to AAU tournaments and you see 15, 16-year-old kids, they're, they're the ones running that team, not the coach. The coach is there just to, you know, I mean, like, you have young players that there is an entitlement to them. And so I'm not saying it makes them bad people. I'm not saying it makes them guilty of a crime. But I am saying that it increases the likelihood that they are going to be put in scenarios or situations on a college campus where the average student understands the fine lines or the gray areas or whatever else of right from wrong. And some of these, we are doing a disservice to young, to some young student athletes because they are being reared and raised in a way that they don't know right from wrong because they've never had to adhere to it. Wouldn't the entitlement argument be more present if he identified who he was said i'm an iu basketball player don't you know who i am yeah i mean it would but what i'm saying is like has he again i don't want to speak necessarily to specifically this case but i think that you are seeing an increase in all sports not just indiana right what i'm saying what i'm saying is this for years the things that used to become an issue in college athletics Indiana always prided itself on not falling victim to that because they had an immunity to it. That immunity doesn't exist anymore. And so therefore, Indiana needs to face the facts of the fact that they are going to deal with some of the same side distractions that you don't have elsewhere. Now, you know where you you don't see it? I mean, there are schools, there have been issues that have, Purdue has had some kids that got into the wrong side of the, you know, Ryan Klein got arrested and, and got a second chance and, and made the best of it at Purdue. So it's not there is no school that's totally immune to it. But all I'm saying is this. This may well have been a case of mistaken identity. Mistake, he said, she said, I have no idea. All I'm saying is for Indiana fans, you the, the calling card or the bragging right of being different being above everything else, being holier than thou. It's gone, and it's been gone for a while. And the earlier that you admit that, the more credibility you have as a fan, quite frankly, because I I just think that there are people that still think that it's like 1990, and I'm like, it's not. It's just not. I anticipate, I mean, people close to it claim that there is more to the McKenzie and Baco story that will come out, and we shall see. I we may never hear. I mean, in totality, it looks pretty innocuous. I mean, I'm assuming what happened was he went to Taco Bell. It took him forever to get his food. He got upset about it. He yelled. He said he he swore at the manager and was like, "Where is my bleepity bleak taco?" Maybe and, and he's just they trying said, to get a cheesy gordita crunch. Right, Jake. come on. Right, 
and they were like, look, man, you got to leave. And he's like, I'm not leaving until I get my, my food. You got to leave now. We asked you to leave once. We're, gonna, we're not going to ask twice or else we're going to call the police. Police show up. What's going on? I want my food. Well, they asked you to leave. I know they asked me to leave, but I already paid for my food. Where's my food? I, you know, I'm assuming that's what took place. I don't know. I wasn't there. Right. I'm assuming that's what took place. And then it at that point, it comes down to a he said, she said, and a following a chain of command. And again, I don't... I don't know what it's like in that situation. I I do believe this, and I'm sure people are going to get mad at me when I say this. So be it. They can. I don't care. Um, I am one who believes, while I am friends with and, and have done a lot with and whatever else, people of law enforcement, I do believe that seeing law enforcement in your rearview mirror or, or, or being approached by them is different for a young in terms of I don't mean that the way that they're handled but I mean the anticipation of how they're going to be handled I would assume is in fact different for a person of color I do believe that and if that makes if people think that makes me a leftist liberal or whatever I apologize for it but I I I, I am just simply open to and aware of trying to put myself in the position of thinking about what it would be like to be someone other than myself and I, I can see how that takes place and how that – so it is unfair of me as a 50-year-old, 51-year-old white guy to immediately assume how a young person of color is supposed to know how to handle in that situation. But I will say, again, in a separate kind of light being shed on it, that you do have young athletes. I'm not saying it's the case in this situation, but Indiana, like most schools now with, with basketball players, have entered into an arena where you simply have players that have been coddled and basically not been told no for most things that, that they request or or situations they walk into for the better part of five or six years because they are put on such a pedestal that then I understand why it would be more difficult for them to immediately adapt to real life, quite frankly. This will be a, this will be a story that's forgotten about in about two weeks. Possibly. Regardless of what's – like even if it is – even if there's nothing new and it's just that, it's – like I don't want to say it's nothing, but it's – okay, you post-bond – you, I guess, do whatever is done with the charges, whatever, and you move on. Like, it's an 18-year-old apparently causing a ruckus at a Taco Bell at 2 in the morning. Like, What do you get at Taco Bell? Me, usually? Yeah. Uh, I love the cheese gordita crunch. Um, now, the cheese gordita crunch is exactly what? Cheese gordita crunch is a soft shell, like a soft tortilla shell, uh-huh. with some cheese sauce on the side, and then a hard taco... And then there's some like beef and some, I don't know what the signature Taco Bell so sauce it's a, is. So it's a, it's a taco and a taco? Kind of. Okay. Eddie, what's your go-to at Taco Bell? Uh, I don't really go to Taco Bell if I'm being honest with you. I'm partial to Beefy Crunch Burrito, but Jake, that's a that's a limited time item. So it's Wh- gone which now. Which one's that? Beefy Crunch Burrito. It's like, it's a burrito, but it has spicy Fritos inside it. They brought it back for a limited time. Can, may I assume that we might have opened up a can of worms here on your Taco oh, I Bell love, habits? I love, I love Taco Bell. It, it's probably... Yeah, it's my go-to See, late night spot. I love when I was of that age. I loved Steak and Shake, man. Back when I could, I loved Steak and Shake, and and I really did think two things. Quite frankly, when I was in college, two things that I thought would never, ever, ever fall from the top pedestal in the world were IU basketball and Steak and Shake. And look where we are. That was my favorite place to go to. Oh, it's the best. And I mean, now it's like, and I don't know if you guys know this or not, but for ten grand, we can add them to the company. Uh, David, what's up, David? 
Hey, what's going on? Uh, long-time listener, first-time caller. I, look, I call in a lot on JMV, but what what y'all just talked about just touched me in the way, you know, you were saying you don't, you don't know, speaking from a, you know, a, a white male perspective, how a black person would feel when the police pull them over. And I'm, I'm 46, but when I was uh, 37, my mother even told me, like, you know, you know, make sure we, if you get pulled over, put your hands on the steering wheel, do this, do that. I'm like, Mommy, I'm 37 years old. I know what to do. But that's just what, as a black man or as a, a black mother, that's the type of stuff we think about. And a lot of times I didn't got, you know, I ain't been pulled over a lot, and I've never been locked up or in trouble. But when I have been pulled over, the first thing go through my head is, Say yes, sir. Say yes, ma'am. Do whatever it takes to get home. Right. And I don't think, you know, a white person not saying, and I, and I work a lot around a lot of white people and all that, and I'm not a racist, and I got a lot of white friends, but I don't think they think about it like that. They don't. It's just certain things that go in our head that we may not be in the wrong, but it's like, did I do anything wrong? And, and David, I would and imagine, they, let me ask you this. Because what I was trying to get at, and sometimes I don't do a very good job of illustrating what I'm trying to say with my words, right? Yeah. So, so what I was trying to say was, David, and tell me if this makes sense or if, if it's relatable to you, because I would I would respect your opinion on it. Um, and that is that I would imagine that the tension of that moment for any, like a young person of color like that, it's very easy for me to say like, well, hey, just like your mom said, you know, put your hands on the wheel, say yes or no, sir. But then when the, when, when the tensions arise a little bit, they are increased because of the perception or the, the awareness of what potentially could happen in the minds of that young person who is thinking through and thus things escalate very quickly, whereas they may not for, say, example, me. Does that make sense what I'm saying? Yeah, I mean, it's just it's just a natural reaction. It's like we've always not been the authority figure. So we, when the when the authority come around, and it's a, a older white man or you know just an adult figure, you know, we we kind of get intimidated by it, especially you know getting pulled over. And then if if we see two police cars coming, then it's like oh, you know, it's over. I'm getting locked up, and you may not even done nothing, but. It's just it's just the feeling we have as a black person that is like, oh man, here here we go with this again. Can I just can you just give me my ticket and let me go, or or what did I really do to get pulled over? Because I see the other cars doing the same thing, and I they didn't get pulled over. Why did I get pulled over? Now, David, you, you just, sound just like a lot of stuff one one uh, rams through our head at that split sure. second. That. Um, you sound like a cool guy, David. If I ever do my PBR party, which I've only been hey. talking about for three years now, would you be down? Diet Cokes are fine. Would you be down for that? Oh, that's all good. And hey, another thing, I used, I worked at, I went to Georgia, I graduated from high school in 95. I worked at Taco Bell on 16th Street in 93. I got stuck at work for the first brickyard. And <laughs> I, never, I was so, look, I was so mad. And I, I'm so glad I worked at Taco Bell when I did because the only fancy tacos we made back then was a seven-layer burrito. <laughs> <laughs> now, David, what was your favorite thing to eat at Taco Bell? You made it all, so what's your favorite uh, thing to eat? I just I just would make a soft taco and put it in a steamer. There you go. And, all right. I, oh, no, 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 no. The best is is when we make the cinnamon twist first thing in the morning and put that cinnamon on them. Now, wait a minute. Do they still do the cinnamon twist? 
I don't know. I don't like Taco Bell because I know what it looked like. Yeah, I, I bet. Now, it, so so I'm, David, I'm you cool where did you go to high school? I'm going to guess like Northwest, Ben Davis. No, I went to George Washington. I graduated and played basketball in '95. Oh man, were you on Jack Owens and all of them? Were you on the floor for that one of the great games of all time? Were you yeah, on the floor I, for that? I went to the. I was on the. I was playing. I was. I went to Washington, and the guy that I made the guy that hit the shot. Yep. We grew up on Warman together on the same street. And the fun fact, he's older than us. When I was in the fourth grade, he was in the fifth grade. When I was in the fifth grade, he was in the sixth grade. I don't know when and where they held him back. <laughs> but he shouldn't have, <laughs> look, but he shouldn't have been on that team. David, I'm gonna file a uh, I'm gonna file a protest on your behalf. How's that? But I appreciate it. We're gonna yeah, find out the statute of limitations. <laughs> yeah. All right, David, I appreciate it, man. Right on. All right, be yeah. good. Good stuff. That was a great game, man. Washington Ben Davis, one of the great games. I remember that. I remember listening to it on the radio. That was a great, 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 great game. No doubt about it. Right before last year, before class basketball. And, you know, that that segues into a whole different thing. But last week I had sent out a bunch of different on on X or Twitter, whatever you want to call it. I sent out a bunch of videos of like the starting lineups of, you know, some of the great. 1983-87 Final Fours with Carnegie and Jerry Baker and the old Channel 4 broadcast. And everybody's like, man, they got to go back to single-class basketball. I don't know that you can. I, it just wouldn't be the same because back then, you know, Anderson. Anderson had Anderson Highland and Madison Heights and Anderson High School and the Wigwam. And, you know, everybody had a job. Everybody had a pension. Everybody had, you know, there was industry within the towns. It's all gone now. And you just don't have the same small town Friday night lights representing your school pride just within the county like you did back then of like, I played for Anderson, my dad played for Anderson, we're going to go to Newcastle, we're going to go to Muncie, we're going to go to Marion. A lot of those schools that we're talking about that were such great traditions there, I mean, the schools aren't even there anymore. It's just a different era, unfortunately. I mean, father time is undefeated. 2.30 in Indianapolis. Whether it's audiobooks or all-time greatest hits, long live listening to your favorites. Learn more about Kaskali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Kaskali is right for you. Plus, for that matter, it's 2.30 everywhere in the Eastern Time Zone. My name is Jake Query, Eddie Garrison, Jimmy Cook, joining me here on Query & Company. Pacers getting the season underway Wednesday night. Gamebridge Fieldhouse, the Washington Wizards will be there. And joining us now... To talk about that and more, Danny Lopez of the Pacers. And Danny, I always forget because it's the longest title known to man. Your exact title with the Pacers is Vice President of? External Affairs and Corporate Communications, Jake. <laughs> you ever heard anything like that? No. no. Well, can we can we actually um, – can we, can we list you in the company as the Vice President of External Affairs and Corporate Communication for Querying Company? Is that cool? Yeah, 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 that's fine. You can okay. list me however you want. Well, listen, the last time we talked to you, um, and for that matter, I think probably the first couple times I was talking to you, it was – and man, time flies because, Danny, we first talked about – and I want to touch on this – just the pavilion itself out in front of Gamebridge Fieldhouse and what was just a vision when we first talked to you about it. And I was at an event downtown about two weeks ago and really kind of strolled through there for the first time. And it's pretty awesome. And, you know, it's kind of multi-purpose, I guess, for this season in terms of as the weather changes, it's going to be able to be used in a couple of different ways. But for those that have not been downtown for a while and might be going to their first Pacer game in a while on Wednesday – Give us a glimpse as to what people can experience on their way into the game. 
Yeah, well, thanks, Jake. I appreciate it. Yeah, it's, it's awesome out there. I mean, there, there's there's not a day that, that goes by that I don't go out there and there's people playing basketball. There's people just sitting and having lunch. Um, you know, when that wh- that where that plaza is now, obviously, it was the parking garage. And when we tore that thing down, that's when we realized how closed off we had been from downtown. So now it's just wide open. You got tons of public art. You've got Sphere that's got a that's got a video running out there all throughout the day on different things. You've got um, you know you've got obviously the basketball court, a lot of covered areas, a lot of green spaces tables so you can sit down and and eat lunch or or have a meeting or whatever it's just a really cool spot in the downtown and it it just opens everything up i mean you see all the architecture you see the skyline you feel like you're in a really walkable nice downtown and it's, it's a it's a super spot it's a really nice spot and of course you mentioned it but we'll have ice skating on there uh, coming up here shortly in another month. We've got all kinds of activities that are happening out there uh, and concerts and movie showings and other things and, you know, pregame parties as we ramp up uh, for the season coming up here on Wednesday. Okay, so speaking of Wednesday and pregame parties, um, there is an opportunity for those that might not have tickets for the game on Wednesday. You guys in about 30 minutes are going to start taking care of some people in that regard, right? Yeah, I mean, this is a big, big day for us every single year uh, when we do this event. We partner with Kroger uh, here in 30 minutes. This is your 30-minute warning or your 27-minute warning because in in 27 minutes all over our social media channels, uh, we're going to put up four locations, four Kroger locations throughout the city where players and staff and DJs and others are going to be the mascots are going to be out handing out $50,000 worth of gas and groceries. We'll be pumping gas for folks. We'll be giving away $25 gift, gift cards for Kroger. Uh, it's just a nice way where, as we get ready for the season, we can give back to the fans. How big was that a year ago, the impact that that had? Because you obviously still have on Pacers.com the reactionary piece to you guys reaching out to the community and partnering with Kroger. How big was that turnaround to obviously motivate it to not only be back again, but you mentioned up to $50,000 in giveaways this year? I mean, you know, look, people people are feeling it right now. It's, it's a tough time for a lot of people, and, and we knew that last year. We had lines of cars and people, you know, 10, 12 deep in the, uh, inside the, the Kroger's just, you know, wanting to get gift cards and wanting to meet the players and stuff. It's just a fun thing that we, we know is meaningful for a lot of people. And I tell you what, we have such a young team. We've got a young group of players, as you all know, and for them – this this is pretty meaningful too because they get out and they get to meet real people and they take pictures and they sign autographs. It's just a really cool experience for everybody involved, but it actually happens to be super meaningful for a lot of people too. Danny Lopez is our guest. He's the vice president for external affairs and corporate communications for Pacers Sports and Entertainment. Pacers season getting underway on Wednesday. We'll let you know one more time before we finish here how you can find out your ways to get tickets via Kroger and the Pacers for Wednesday night's game against the Wizards. Danny, I'm curious, though, in the last, say, six months, how many days have passed where you have not been involved in some conversation, meeting, or text, email, whatever it might be, in terms of planning for the All-Star game? Oh, it's it's nonstop. It's going to be such an awesome, awesome event. And whether you're a basketball fan, whether you have tickets to any of the specific events that are happening in all, you know, during All Star uh, those four days, uh, it is just going to be awesome environment downtown. And so when when you know when when February 16th comes and everything's ramping up downtown, people are really going to feel that they're in this footprint, and it's going to be very different from any All Star that that has come before. And part of it is truly. 
we've been planning this for seven years. It was seven years ago that, that Larry, uh, Larry drove that, that, that Indy car on Fifth Avenue and hand-delivered that bid. We did it differently right out, right out of the gate. Nobody had ever done anything like that, obviously, and nobody has planned an all-star this way. Where We've got 400 people on our host committee. They're all involved. Everybody's excited. Tons of volunteers. Uh, it's just going to be a really, really great weekend. Okay, Danny, and one more time. Way, and, and, and the la- sorry, the last thing I'm going to say about that is it's our chance to really put the city on display for a global audience. It's an international game. It's an international audience, and this is our chance to show off the city. I mean, it's going to be – you know, I for that matter, just the, the Saturday night stuff alone, and for those that are unfamiliar, the – the some of the pregame festivities in terms of what like the dunk contest and the three point shootout those those kind of events yeah. those are going to be at Lucas Oil right and then the game itself at Gamebridge Fieldhouse correct All Star Saturday night uh, so the dunk contest the skills competition the three point contest that piece will be at Lucas Oil and there'll be some other things at Lucas Oil and then a lot of the events including uh, game uh, including the, the game itself will be at Gamebridge but you know that that's the thing you hit the nail on the head when when I think about All-Star as a kid probably you too I think about those slam dunk contests or the three point contests those are the memories that are burned in people's minds and to be able to pull that many people this this being the most fan facing All-Star that has ever been done and to be able to pull those those people and that number of people into a, a facility like Lucas Oil at those price points is just an incredible thing in and of itself. So it's going to be a lot of fun. It's going to be something community-driven, uh, totally different from any other All-Star before. And it's funny, too, Danny, because when I was a kid, when the 85 All-Star game was here, Ralph Sampson, your MVP, um, you know, th- at that time, the dunk contest and everything was at Market Square, and the game itself was at the Dome. So now flipped, which I think shows the providence of Gamebridge Fieldhouse and just the, the showcase of the Fieldhouse itself for the city now here in 2023. So people that would like to go into the field house that want to go to the game on Wednesday or be able to take advantage of what Kroger is partnering with can do so. Tell me again what's taking place. Check out our social media handles here in 22 minutes at 3 o'clock. All over our social media handles, we'll have information on four Kroger locations. They're spread out uh, all across the city so that people can get to them. Come on out visit with the players they'll sign some autographs they'll hand out gift cards they'll pump some gas for you uh and there'll be music and staff and you'll just have a, a real good time uh it'll be like a block party out there and we're really excited to give away fifty thousand dollars in gas and groceries uh this afternoon through kroger excellent danny appreciate it man good talking to you thank you jake take care all right danny lopez from pacer sports and entertainment again 22 minutes from now three o'clock is when all of that will happen by the way i wanted to read one comment here via text appreciate it Uh, Jake, I'm listening to the show. I have a comment and question. Regardless of one's color, gender, and so on, when a police officer asks you to leave the vicinity, aren't you wise just to comply? Sounds like they were trying to let him off the hook, but he chose his own destiny. We're talking about the situation with Ibaco at in Bloomington. Also, as a white man, I always say yes sir, no sir. If I get pulled over, as well as leave my hands in plain sight, it's what you should do. I understand all of that, and, and yeah, you are correct in the fact that had he just complied. You are, yeah, absolutely. He probably is not in this situation. All I'm saying is, regardless of that scenario, I agree that for me, that is exactly how I would act when a police officer comes up to me. I'm not talking about complying when they ask me to leave. Yes, I would leave. But in terms of like, yes, sir, no, sir, hands on the wheel and all of that, all I'm saying is there could be an a nervousness or an anxiety that takes place for some people in that situation that I can't relate to because there is not a precedent emblazed in my mind from a cultural standpoint of what in my mind could happen. 
it doesn't exist with me. And I do think that for some people, based on precedent of what they have seen in the past, there's an anxiety there that would be a challenge that I am fortunate to not have to deal with. That's all. And I try to think about what it would be like to be in other people's shoes. So it's a good good point, though, on the text. I appreciate it. Um, back to the game yesterday, though. To, back to the Colts and the Browns. Jimmy, I think you said it really well earlier. You made a really good point. In the moment, it's fair to say, like, the officials robbed the Colts of a victory. But in totality, didn't the Colts kind of put themselves in that position that they should not have been in? Yeah, I mean, you had pretty much handled P.J. Walker and that Browns offense for most of the game, and you look at the ability of the Browns to get down the field and put themselves in a situation where it's now a toss-up where the Colts had to play perfect defense and the referees could be involved in some capacity. If you're able to shut down and limit a journeyman quarterback from driving down the field and not playing off as soft as you did, maybe you're not in that situation. But that's just one example. The offensive line was in tatters at times. Miles Garrett was the game record everybody knows he can be. And and I mentioned that with Eddie. Like there's there's other players around the league, Aaron Donald, Chris Jones. Like there there are players that are game wreckers along the trenches where if you let them get going, they're gonna be a nightmare for you. He did it in special teams. Gardner Minshew didn't take care of the football yet again. He strip sacked twice. There are plenty of areas where you could point to as a Colts fan when you're looking back and either rewatching or just looking back at some of those drives and saying to yourself, you know, we shouldn't have been in that position to begin with. And that's the separation. That's what you hope by season's end, that they're putting games away. Eddie mentioned earlier the play calling before they punted the ball back to the Browns that started that drive. It's a lot of Zach Moss, not a ton of Jonathan Taylor, and you're opening the door for Cleveland to get one more shot at it. So, yes, it stinks. It's frustrating that the officials did get involved a bit because you kind of forced their hand to do so based on the situation at play. But also, I want to see two, three weeks from now, if there's another tight, close ball game, they're either able to close it out or they're not putting themselves in that situation to begin with. I just, man, you know, don't you feel pretty good about yourself when P.J. Walker's got to lead his team downfield? Yes. And they needed seven, right? They didn't need three. They needed seven. The only way that they were going I mean, six, but I was saying it, Jake. Like I was watching at home with some friends. Like fourth quarter, however many drives the Browns had each time, it's like, well, how are they going to move the ball? The only way they're really going to get back into this game is if you self-implode or if some magic happens and you had a perfect cocktail of everything on that final drive. Right. Like, it's frustrating, but it's it's fixable. It's correctable, and on the Shane Steichen side. This is a stat that I can't remember where I saw it, but I saw it on Twitter earlier today. This isn't a moral victory town. I understand that. But from what he's able to design from plays and just the way they look offensively, we already mentioned Jonathan Taylor, but from an efficiency standpoint, they're the last team in the league to put up 20 points a game or at least 20 points in every game. Like the, the offense is there. They need to clean stuff up defensively. They still need a couple more weapons offensively, but like you can finally see where things want to be in Shane Steichen's offense versus years of Frank Reich of just, ah, what's this going to be week to week? You know, the there were some silver linings. There were actually a few things that you could look at and say were positives. And I know it sounds crazy in a loss. Um, one of them, quite frankly, is that I, I'm not going to sit here and say the year's a loss, but if you know that you're not going to go into the playoffs or make a deep playoff run, and, and sure, that's still in play. I, you know, they're, they're kind of fading further back there, but um, 
in the long run, do you look at it and say, hey, you know what, it, it, it probably worked out well for us that they didn't push too far in too early? Maybe. But there were a couple of other reasons why I think yesterday you can be optimistic about what took place. And I'll tell you what that is next. The Jay Cook Plays of the Day. This is me, all right? I'm not a f- athlete. This is my f- way. This is how I win. Today's Plays of the Day, NLCS, ALCS, doubleheader this evening. We'll take over half a run in both the first innings of those matchups. But we'll take the Phillies to one of the money line, and we'll take the Astros to one of the money line today in those respective series. It's also National Tight End Day slash Weekend, so we'll ride the George Kittle train as an anytime touchdown scorer today for the 49ers. Eddie, you do not have anything, correct? Correct. All right. Now, so you have the World Series as being who, Jimmy? Uh, Astros, Phillies. JMV, your thoughts? I love the American League. That championship series has been awesome. Absolutely. NL's been awesome. pretty fun, too, though. I, by the way, Schwarber's five home runs in the postseason, are those all five solo shots? I think so. I don't think anybody's I'm been pretty home. sure you're right. Yep. I think almost all of them, their home runs. How many of their home runs have been solo? Yeah, a lot. Like a majority of them. By the way, Jimmy's over here drinking. Um, that's an offshoot. How close is that to like vitamin water zero? <laughs> it, it's Costco's the, the vitamin, Costco vitamin water zero. Version. Yes, it is. Yeah. It's called Vitarain zero. <laughs> oh, it's Kirkland. Yeah. Vitarain zero. Yeah. zero. <laughs> that, Wait, what's it called? It makes me chuckle. <laughs> it's Vitarain. I know. It's like when you get Dr. Pepper. Wow. You get Dr. Thunder instead of Dr. I mean, Pepper. That, well, haven't you ever gone? <laughs> this happened to me in college one time. I was going past one of the like. I won't say the names of them, but like discount like grocery store type places. And you go in there and you're like, oh my gosh, they have detergent is $2. Yeah. And you take it home and then you're like, wait a minute, this is Tida. T-I-D-A. T-I-D-A. It looks like the exact same, right? (laughs) Exact same. Butterain. (laughs) Snoggle. I like it. I'm partial to the dragon fruit. It's delicious. Took the lemonade today. but Hey, how was the Amityville Horror House? I said Horror House, not Horror House. Okay, so... So we, we know I was that in, one is. He clarified that Island. earlier. <laughs> What's that? I was on Long Island with my buddy Byron. We went to Amityville, New York. And John, you know, I mean, Amityville Horror yes. was a huge, huge franchise. James basically. Brolin and his beard and everything totally. right there. Yeah. So the house where it took place is on a beautiful street. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's literally a beautiful street in Amityville, New York. But even like the word Amityville to me is like, you know what I mean? Just you see the word and think, I think of like horror movie. Um the house is on a – it's a gorgeous house. The street is immaculate. And across the street, the dude that lived across the street has this huge mansion, and he had a like a high-def screen that was showing Amityville Horror along with all of his Halloween decorations yeah. out in front of his house. That's awesome. And so he told me that the guy – the original Amityville Horror house, the reason it's called that is because in 19 – I think it was 74, an adult son that lived that grew up in that house – he had a lot of issues and I think basically was a drug addict and somebody convinced him that he could get insurance money. So he killed his family one night. He got convicted and sent away. The new people that moved into the house then claimed that it was haunted and all this other stuff that the movie and the book came out about. And they later said, yeah, we made the whole thing up. It was a cash grab, but people constantly, like he told me, people constantly are driving past it, yep. and the whole street kind of embraces like the fun of it. It's like when I go to uh, like north of Chicago in Highland Park, and I drive past all the John Hughes places oh, yeah, all the yeah. time, yeah, where uh, Samantha Baker lived, and 16 Candles, where Jake Ryan lived, and 16 Candles. Um, 
what's his Cameron's house and Ferris Bueller's Day Off. So Tom Cruise's and Risky Business. Is so up Ferris there too. Bueller's Day Off house, can you get in? Because that's like back kind of in woods. No, you it? can see it easily. I mean, you can see it. It is right, especially now if the leaves are falling. I saw it in in June in the summertime. Is there a Ferrari in the backyard? Uh, there is no. But you can. I mean, there's the drop off. You can tell of the <laughs> yeah. drop off right there for real. And then Tom Cruise's place um, in Risky Business, where he had all the hookers, you know, in and out up there too. Is right there. That's pretty so, awesome. Right, I mean, all really in a, in a probably a ten mile radius. Um, I think I've told you I've been to the ET house in mm. L.A. That was pretty darn cool. Right? Yeah, you've been to Fast Times House. Fast been to Times Stacey's house. house. Yeah, yeah I've been yeah. to Stacey's. And how about you're this? the only one to go there. Probably didn't get any either. I think everybody else went there and got some. <laughs> how about this? I, yeah, I, was, I went to the. She's pools. giving up to Mark Ratner trying to. You know, you're just, not that far I behind. I just wanted iced tea, John. You know that the um, there's no pool in the backyard. Yeah, the pool was actually filmed like three doors down, wow. and the lady's like, "Yeah, that guy hates when people come by and ask to see the pool because they're probably all looking for Linda Barrett, right?" Hell yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, no, in the window when <laughs> Red right. Hamilton was uh, big show lined up next. Uh, yeah, yeah, we're gonna go with what happened yesterday too. It's funny how many different ways you can look at this too, and you're allowed to go not Homer angle and still look at that and go, "Man, those guys really screwed up a couple of times late." But yeah, uh, it's it's one of these things, Jake, where Everything, one of these days, will have to come together because right now you can tell they're still not anywhere near considering the type of whistle, there's still the bad fortune, the other good play here or there, and then it's like two steps forward and three steps back with this group. It still is. All right, you got till uh, 6 o'clock, John, to go over all that, mm. right? Coming up next. That's JMV. Thanks for listening, everybody. We'll be back noon tomorrow here at Quarian Company 93.5 The Fan.